Shalom, and welcome to our very first online Shavuot conference. We're so excited to be here with you all today as we come together to celebrate this beautiful high holy day that our Father has given us. This day that points back to the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai and the giving of His Holy Spirit on Mount Zion. Amen. Yeshua has come and he has called us to this worship, like he told that Samaritan woman at the well, to worship him in spirit and in truth, using what he has really given us on the Feast of Shavuot, the truth of Mount Sinai and the spirit of Mount Zion. And today we sit here at a time and in a season where there has been patriarchs and disciples who have dreamed to be in living in the time we're living in, a time that's closer to his return than ever before. And there is much work to do, brothers and sisters. And yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited. We have, uh, we're going to have six teachers coming on here tonight, talking with us live, giving teachings. And what, what I'm excited about regarding that is they come from a variety of backgrounds and have a variety of giftings. We have evangelists, we have teachers, we have worship leaders, we have pastors, and we're going to see all of these giftings come together for his glory. Because see, I believe that in this restoration of spirit and truth worship, we're going to all need to be humble and learn from one another, be willing to to realize where others are gifted in and allow ours to be teachable, to learn from them. Because see, this is what spirit and truth worship is, is to look like Yeshua. And he has distributed all of his gifts to his body. Exactly. Amen. I mean, as scripture says, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, was fully come, they were all with one accord in unity, in one mind, in one place. And may we have that same unity here today and as we go forth as disciples of Yeshua. Amen. So guys, this is going to be our schedule. We're going to have six speakers each are going to be speaking about 10 to 15 minutes. And then we're going to move into a live questions and answer and just a panel discussion around the Feast of Shavuot. Uh, I'm going to be putting each speaker's link and information if you want to find out more about them in the description of this video. And if during the broadcast you feel blessed and you want to sow into these ministries, go to riseonfire.com to make any kind of a gifting. So first up, we have David Wilbur. Now, David is an author, Bible teacher, Messianic Christian apologist, and joint CEO of Pronomium Publishing. He's written several books, including his most recent work, Remember the Sabbath, What the New Testament Says About Sabbath Observance for Christians. He's also written various other theological articles and publications. Now, and we're excited to have our dear friend on to share with us regarding this feast, how Christians can practically approach this, keep it, and yeah. And the introduction to what this feast is. 
Chag Sameach, everyone. Happy Shavuot. It is a tremendous blessing to be here and to share with you all. Um, I want to thank uh, Rise on Fire Ministries for giving me this opportunity to speak. And once again, it is a blessing and an honor to be with you all and to share from God's Word. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is David Wilbur. I'm an author and Bible teacher. And I want to talk to you guys today about what exactly it is that we are celebrating. What is is Shavuot and how do we do it? So I'm going to be giving an introduction to this biblical holiday for those of you who might be new to celebrating it. Um, but even if you aren't new, if you've been celebrating for a while, stick around anyway. There might be something you haven't considered before, or there may be a new tradition that you'll want to give a try this year. In any case, uh, let's dive in. So God gave his people several holy days or holidays, festivals, to remember and celebrate every year. Here are a list of them. You have uh, Passover, Unleavened Bread, Firstfruits, Shavuot, and so forth. The purpose of God's holy days and festivals is to remember what God has done in the past and anticipate the fulfillment of his promises for the future. So for example, Passover commemorates God delivering Israel from Egypt. These holidays also reveal the work of the Messiah. Once again, like God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, the Messiah delivered us from slavery to sin and death. It is not a coincidence that Yeshua, Jesus, died during the Passover season. So on a deeper level, Passover and the other festivals like Shavuot point to the Messiah's work. Finally, these holidays bring rhythm and intentionality to our lives, uniting God's people around significant events and the truths they reveal about God. One of the purposes of these festivals is to bring God's people together and unite us around a shared history and shared values. To give an example of how to think about this, um, in the United States, we celebrate Independence Day. Why? Well, it's one of our festivals. It's a reminder of our history as a nation, and it unites us around shared values and principles that we hold to as Americans. It's the same idea for those of us who celebrate God's holidays, for those of us uh, who are believers. Um, these holidays, they're all about commemorating events that define who we are and what we believe. So in this teaching, we're going to talk about one particular festival, and that is the Feast of Shavuot, or in English, the Feast of Weeks. In Greek, it is called Pentecost. The name Shavuot means weeks, hence the Feast of Weeks, and this word is the plural form of Shavua, week. And uh, the name Shavuot comes from one of the main instructions connected to this festival. What is that? Well, God said to count seven weeks from the first fruits offering within the week of unleavened bread to the day of Shavuot. So, from the first fruits offering at the time of Passover and unleavened bread, we count seven weeks, seven Shavuot, to the Feast of Shavuot, which occurs on the 50th day of this count. And that's actually where the name Pentecost comes from. It means 50th in Greek. But before we get into the specifics about how to celebrate this festival, I want to spend some time talking about the meaning of this festival. What is Shavuot all about? 
Well, just like Unleavened Bread and Sukkot, Shavuot is a harvest festival. This holiday celebrates the wheat harvest in ancient Israel, but like God's other festivals, Shavuot is much more than merely a celebration of the harvest. Shavuot is a memorial of God's saving acts in history, specifically in regard to the events surrounding Israel's journey out of Egypt to the Promised Land. So, just like Passover and Unleavened Bread, Shavuot is a memorial of the events surrounding Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Shavuot marks the end of the spring festivals, and like we saw earlier, Shavuot is connected to Passover by way of the counting of weeks, or the counting of the Omer, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Shavuot is the completion of the Passover season. Also, a popular and long-held tradition is that Shavuot was when God initially gave the Torah, his law, to Israel. After they left Egypt, Israel had reached the wilderness of Sinai in the third month, according to Exodus 19, which would have been close to the time of Shavuot. There are also two loaves of bread that are given as a wave offering during Shavuot, which have been said to symbolize the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Now, the giving of the Torah, God's law, around or on the Feast of Shavuot is significant. When Israel was in Egypt, God told Moses to tell them four things he promised to do. Number one, I will deliver you from slavery. Number two, I will redeem you. Number three, I will take you to be my people. And number four, I will bring you into the land. The giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai is widely regarded as the fulfillment of God's promise to take Israel to be his people. It should be noted that I will take you to be mine is marriage covenant language, which is why the giving of the Torah is traditionally seen as a type of marriage ceremony. The prophet Jeremiah hints at this concept when he references the Sinai covenant and portrays the Lord as Israel's husband. So the Lord betrothed Israel at Mount Sinai, if you will, and Israel became his people. Israel spoke as one, saying, quote, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, which can be seen as Israel's wedding vows. Finally, the marriage contract was then written down in the form of the Torah. Now, this is a meaningful event not only for ancient Israel, but also all of us as Christians. When we receive the Messiah and we commit to following him, we become part of God's people, Israel. Israel's story becomes our story too. Thus, we make those same wedding vows to keep all that the Lord has spoken. That is what Shavuot is all about. It's kind of like a wedding anniversary. It's a day to remember and to celebrate the day that God took us to be his people. So, now we can see why Shavuot is considered the completion of Passover. Passover is a memorial of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and that deliverance was made complete when Israel committed to following the Torah as God's people. Israel was saved by God's grace and then given the Torah as the way to walk out their relationship with God. Being freed from Egypt means now living as a free people, and the Torah defines what that looks like. In the New Testament, just like Passover, Shavuot is given even greater significance. As the book of Acts records, Yeshua visited his disciples prior to his ascension and promised that the Holy Spirit would soon empower them in a remarkable new way. They would be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Sumeria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. 
Shortly after Yeshua's ascension, when the disciples were all gathered together in one place, God suddenly poured out his spirit upon them. And as we read in the second chapter of Acts, the gospel message was then preached in many different languages, and thousands came to know the Messiah as Savior and Lord. God chose to launch this world-changing, spirit-driven movement on Shavuot, the day of Pentecost. And that movement continues to this day. The Spirit being poured out upon God's people is significant when it comes to God's law as well. One of the promises of the New Covenant, which was inaugurated by the Messiah, is that God would write His Torah, His law, upon the hearts of His people. Members of the New Covenant will have God's Torah inscribed upon their hearts, producing obedience to the commandments. This is what Ezekiel describes when he proclaims that God will give His people a new heart, put His Spirit within them, and cause them to, quote, walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Paul alludes to these prophecies when he characterizes believers as those who live out, quote, the righteous requirement of the law because they walk, quote, according to the Spirit. Also, this promise does not just apply to Jewish believers. Gentile believers are given the same Spirit in accordance with the New Covenant promise. So, the Spirit being poured out on Shavuot is, once again, a fulfillment of what God wanted all along, a people who will be faithful to Him. He will take us to be his people. Shavuot commemorates God giving us his Torah to show us how to live and also his spirit to empower us to live that way. Thus, Shavuot is a memorial of the giving of the Torah as well as the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. God said that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. Through Messiah, we are adopted as Abraham's children and given the same mission to bless the nations. God gave us both the Torah and the Holy Spirit so that we may bring in the harvest of the nations for his glory. And that's what Shavuot is all about. It's a time to remember and celebrate the fact that we've been delivered, taken to be God's people, and empowered to reach the nations with the gospel. So what are some ways we can celebrate Shavuot today? Well, first, there is the counting of the Yomer. The Bible tells us to count 50 days from the first fruits offering within the week of unleavened bread to the day of Shavuot. The first fruits of ripe barley was tied together in a bundle and brought to the priest at the temple to be waved before the Lord. In ancient times, beginning with the first fruits offering after the Sabbath within unleavened bread, an omer of barley was brought to the Jerusalem temple and waved before the Lord on each of the 49 days of the count. Traditionally, this period of counting is called the counting of the Omer. There's actually some debate about when the first fruits offering and thus the start of the count toward Shavuot should be performed. Leviticus 23.15 says to count from the day after the Sabbath. Some say that the count should start from the weekly Sabbath within unleavened bread, which would put the first fruits ceremony always on Sunday. Others argue that it should start after the opening high Sabbath of unleavened bread, which would put it always on the 16th of Nisan. There is some ambiguity in the text, and even the Pharisees and Sadducees debated this issue in the first century. Not surprisingly, believers continue to debate this very issue today, and uh, I'm not going to get into that, but no matter when you start, we can still count the days to Shavuot. 
So how do we do that today practically? Well, in ancient Israel, the first fruits ritual pertained specifically to the land of Israel and depended upon a working priesthood and tabernacle or temple in Jerusalem. Since that is not available today, we can't observe many of the aspects of the ritual the way it is written in the Torah. So we can't do things like uh, the traditional wave offering on each of the days of the Omer like they did in ancient Israel. However, just like with the other festivals in the Torah, we can still honor the memory of these rituals as we look forward to the time when the temple and priesthood are restored in the future. One way Judaism has traditionally done this is by reciting a blessing every evening from first fruits to Shavuot. They count the day and recite a blessing. Many people have also come up with their own traditions. For example, some families will make a calendar for this season and pick Bible verses to recite and memorize every evening. As for the actual day of Shavuot, the Torah says we are to treat this day as a type of Sabbath, a day when no ordinary work is to be done. So on Shavuot, we enjoy God's blessing of rest. Also, the Torah commands us to rejoice with our families and others on this day. So in order to keep this commandment to rejoice, many will get together at their local congregation or at someone's house and simply worship together or celebrate together, eat together, and just have fun fellowshipping. Traditionally, many people will also make it a point to give to the poor during Shavuot. This is based on the Torah commandment to leave the edges of your field unharvested for the poor, which is connected to the Feast of Shavuot. Another popular tradition is to read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. This is because the story of Ruth takes place during the harvest season, where Ruth is seen gleaning from the fields. Also, Ruth was a Moabite who became part of the people of Israel. So this reminds us of how we become part of God's people through the gospel of Messiah Yeshua, which again fits the theme of Shavuot. Some other common traditions include eating dairy, such as cheesecake and ice cream, which is meant to be a reminder of God's promise to bring us to a land flowing with milk and honey and of the sweetness of the Torah. Also, some people will decorate their home or congregation with fresh greens and flowers, which again is a symbol of the Torah and how it is a tree of life to those who hold fast to its wisdom. So there you go, that is the Feast of Shavuot and what it means and how we can celebrate it. Real quick, just a shameless plug, but if you want to learn more about the biblical festivals and how to celebrate them, I wrote this short little book for you called A Christian Guide to the Biblical Feasts. If you are interested in why we do things like keep the Sabbath and festivals as Christians, and you want to be able to defend this view to those who ask about why you do these things, there is another book I wrote for you. It's called Remember the Sabbath, what the New Testament says about Sabbath observance for Christians. So you can find both of these books and more at my website, davidwilber.com. Anyway, Shavuot is an amazing biblical holiday, which reminds us of what God has done for us and our purpose as followers of Messiah. I pray that your celebration of this festival will give you a greater appreciation of God's faithfulness and will inspire you to live in obedience to the Messiah and continue to to be his witnesses in the world. Bless you all and Chag Sameach. Thank you, David. That was wonderful. You know, it's so helpful, I think, for anyone who's new to the feast to just have an easy place to start because it can easily feel so overwhelming to keep them. But actually, as we can hear and 
if you just look at the what the Bible says regarding the feast days, they're simple, they're easy, they're not a burden, and anyone can begin celebrating them in their own home and make it a joy to do so. I love what David mentioned regarding the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit has come to write the law on our hearts and that he will cause us to obey the instructions of our father. Just again, demonstrating how you cannot remove the Holy Spirit from the truth, from the commandments, and that the Holy Spirit will always point us back to that. You cannot separate spirit from truth. That's why Yeshua called us to worship in both. And, you know, something I love that he mentioned is how Shavuot is like a wedding anniversary. I think that's a really beautiful way to see that. But also, I loved how he phrased this one bit, and so I wrote it down. God gave us both the Torah and the Holy Spirit so that we may, we may bring in the harvest of the nations for his glory. Amen. Amen. So that's good. good. Thank you again, David. That was wonderful. Next up, we have... My dear friend, Chris Frankie. Chris is someone who I think many people have no idea the impact that he has had on the Messianic movements, uh, really building some of the most influential and far-reaching ministries in the United States. He is also the pastor of the Hebraic Family Fellowship in Norman, Oklahoma. And he's also known as Mason Clover. He is a worship artist. He has amazing music. So uh, without further ado, Chris Frankie. So today I am going to be talking about uh, the apocalypse at Shavuot Pentecost. So if you look at the modern phrase, the, the definition term of apocalypse from a English standpoint, from a, from a worldly 21st century standpoint, this is considered to be something that is futuristic. It is something that is uh, devastating to the world. And that's kind of what we, we see with the modern definition, the complete final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation. Over the last couple of months, uh, our local church and uh, one of the pastors at our church, Brent Avery, we've been going through the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. But we've gone, been going through that as the revelation of Jesus, something that should reveal Jesus Yeshua to us when reading the revelation that was given to John. And not from the standpoint of being scared or some sort of uh, doom and gloom event, but to teach us how to become victors through our faith and through our walk in Jesus, not to be victims. Uh, whether it is the destruction of the world or it's the destruction of the kingdoms throughout the history of time, there's only one kingdom that has remained and the promises have stayed the same. That is the kingdom of God. All other kingdoms have risen, have fallen, um, the United States of America, for example, a, a kingdom, uh, it, it seems like it's on a downward decline. There's a lot of envy and fighting and pride and uh, unmoral things that are happening. But the apocalypse from a biblical standpoint is not about the rise and fall of, of empires inside the world. It's not about some future catastrophic event or some sort of of nuclear war or, you know, the, all these things that, that a lot of money has been made and a lot of people have flocked to from prophetic, prophecy type of standpoints. Um, 
That's not the biblical definition. The biblical definition of apocalypse is something that should be a, a complete destruction of a paradigm. Uh, what does that mean? It's, it's a fundamental change. It's a, uh, a fundamental change to your approach, to your assumptions, to how you walk, how you talk, how you think about everything. Um, it's basically a life-altering change for an individual. And it's through that biblical definition that I want to look at the life-altering changes and the life-altering paradigms that happen through the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, Shavuot. Um, Shavuot from the standpoint of the giving of the law and the establishment of the Constitution and the nation of Israel and the people by the giving of the law to Moses at Sinai, but also by the outpouring of the Spirit of God in the establishment of the first messianic Christians in the book of Acts. That is what's commonly known as the Feast of Pentecost. See, Moses was a prophet sent to foreshadow Yeshua. Moses was not the end all to be all. He was a prophet sent to show us the perfect prophet, to teach us, uh, to grow us in a way, to to reestablish a thought process in the minds of, of people who were slaves. They were enslaved in Egypt. Um, and one who, through the calling of God in the burning bush experience, would be powered by the Spirit of God and be used to deliver the Israelites from the slavery of death and oppression at the hands of the pharaohs of this world. And the pharaohs of this world are also foreshadows of Satan, the adversary, our own flesh, our own pride. Um, a lot of times we, we like to give the adversary a little bit more credit. Uh, a lot of times the adversary doesn't even need to do it. It's the Pharaoh inside of us. It's that desire for pride and, 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 and attaining the world that wells up and comes out. And we have this nature of whether we like it or not, we create ourselves or other men as sort of demigods of this society. And from Genesis to Revelation, God continues to try to get us to realize and to shift our paradigms that he alone is God and worthy of praise. Jesus dwelling and teaching and doing life with his 12 apprentices was also a foreshadowing of God's pouring out of the Holy Spirit that he wanted to dwell in the temples of flesh to deliver him from the slavery of sin and death, excuse me. And that should cause us to be delivered from the pride and the lusts of the flesh that create ourselves as those demigods, as those larger-than-life beings that really without God, we're, we're just not, we're, we're broken vessels. Sinai was the Israelites' just witnessing this God who stepped in and destroyed their enemy. A life-altering moment. They went through the waters of mikvah, a baptism, and they journeyed to Mount Sinai to where they would now face an apocalypse, a paradigm-shifting moment. Meeting God would force them to weigh what they had known in slavery in Egypt versus exactly what God was trying to do here and now for them. You see, God was real. It wasn't just this historical thing. It wasn't just these words on the page or this 
oral law or this cultural thing. This was a living, breathing creator trying to inhabit the lifestyle and the changes, the apocalypse of his creation. God had chosen them to be a holy nation, to be a set-apart people, to dwell under the leadership of the greatest king, a king greater than Pharaoh, Yahweh. And yet, just like with our worldly thoughts, in that type of an apocalypse, the Israelites were scared. They did not want to meet with God face to face. They wanted a representative to go, and that representative was Moses. Now, I have to believe God knew that that's what was going to happen. But still, God, throughout time, is attempting to have us have an apocalypse where a paradigm shift where we can meet, encounter, experience, and be empowered by God to do his work on this earth. God gave the constitution to Moses. He established the boundaries to set apart a holy nation from the evil nation of the world's. A document to define what God wanted, not for salvation, but to walk out their faith with fear and trembling. The salvation we, we hear in the Torah, come stand back and see thy salvation of the Lord that day at the Red Sea. So the Torah, the establishment, the constitution was an apocalypse because it was a paradigm shift from the ways of the world's culture to define God's culture of a holy nation and a people that were set apart. But the salvation came only by God, only at the hands of God, only by the power of God in his spirit. And for 40 years, they wandered learning about God, learning about themselves and attempting to shake off the trappings that they had inherited from Egypt. A shift, an apocalypse, a paradigm adjustment of you're no longer slaves, but you're becoming bond servants. Now let's look at Pentecost in Acts. 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. During those 40 days, Jesus helped the apprentices shake off the shock, the emotions, and he continued to show himself to give the proof, the evidence that was needed that no earthly grave could hold God down. He also proved to all of the generations before, not that he had to, not that he owed anybody anything, but it's just a, a father who sent a son who loves us for his namesake, that we are no longer dead to the transgressions of our sin and our death if Yeshua is in us. And on the 50th day, the memorial of the giving of the law at Sinai, the establishment of slaves to bond servants, the Feast of Weeks, while they were gathered waiting as they were instructed to do by Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Holy Spirit fell upon them in an apocalyptic way, completely transformed everything. Jesus himself coming and showing the religious leadership was an apocalypse to the paradigms of the religious leaderships and the people from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they killed him for it. But now he was inviting people to a whole nother apocalypse. An apocalypse that says not only did God come in the flesh and dwell 
And not only did he speak and he, and he rose from the grave, but now that spirit, the spirit that hovered over the waters, the spirit that spoke the creation into creation, that spirit can dwell in the temples of us so that the spirit by which we wrestle with inside the same spirit that Adam and Hava, Adam and Eve wrestled with in the garden. That we would have a new spirit. That we would have a cleansing spirit inside of us. And it would be the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God. And it was through this apocalyptic invitation in the book of Acts that the first Messianic Christians were born. And it says in the book of Acts, through them deciding to uh, uh, move in that apocalyptic way to trust God and to allow God to move and to, to take ownership and be joyful with that and to obey with their lips and with their feet and with their minds. Thousands were saved. And priests who were serving in synagogues made adjustments. Galatians 1, Paul tells us that Paul himself had had an apocalyptic moment on his way to Damascus, as it was recorded in Acts chapter 9. The apocalypse of Pentecost and Shavuot sometimes get overlooked by first fruits or Passover or tabernacles. But these are some of the most amazing moments for spirit and truth believers. And this year, I humbly submit to you that through prayer and fasting, we can seek another apocalyptic encounter with our God. Similar to the one that was at Sinai, similar to the one that was recorded in the book of Acts. One that causes us to look inwardly at our walk, our thoughts, our relationships, our faith, and to be utterly transformed by the power and the renewing of our mind and the renewing of our spirit by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Let it not just be our normal feast, brothers and sisters. Let it not just be we're checking off a box. No. Let's expect that the Lord does what he says. And let's enter into his presence asking him humbly to move in us again. I think if you're watching this teaching, it would be a safe assumption that you've walked out your salvation by utilizing the entire scripture, spirit and truth, Genesis to Revelation, whether you identify with labels or Hebrew roots or full Bible believers or Messianic Christians or Saturday church or whatever it is, I would say that it's probably safe that you Utilize all scripture to the best of your ability. Yet it is a journey to become apprentices of Jesus. It is not one that, that, that we should seek to think that we've arrived at some fixed point, brothers and sisters. That we are still on the journey, whether we're here and another one is there, but we're on the journey. A journey to be the best apprentices of Yeshua that we can be. And that cannot be through our power. It has to be through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit from God to us. But see, Shavuot is a feast of freedom. Feast of weeks. Pentecost is a feast of freedom. A freedom from oppression. Freedom from bondage. Freedom from whatever is enslaving you. 
And so, church, I ask you today, gathered all over the world, maybe you lack forgiveness. Maybe you're still struggling with an addiction. Maybe there's trauma that you have not, you have not let go. Maybe, maybe you are, are angry with God and you're still going through the motions. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's uh, 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 anybody. But I have to believe that there's still some bondage, still something that you are not free from. Because every person I've met, including myself, we wrestle against the flesh. And we wrestle against spiritual principalities. Shavuot is a time historically where God sets captives free for his namesake alone. And he's used apocalypses, apocalyptic events and encounters to turn slaves into bond servants. The Holy Spirit is able and the Holy Spirit is fully capable of empowering as you embark on a more intimate relationship with the Lord. Shalom and blessings, Haksameyak. I just want to say that is the first time I've ever heard of the concept of the apocalypse of Shavuot. Um, so that was really, really interesting. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. That was really powerful. And I had to make a note of one thing that you said that really just spoke to me uh, when you gave the definition of apocalypse. The biblical definition of apocalypse is a complete destruction of a paradigm of your assumptions. It is a life-altering change for an individual through humility, prayer, and fasting and his Holy Spirit. Wow. Yeah, God wants to radically intervene in all of our lives, just as he has historically radically intervened in the lives of Israel. And Shavuot is that festival of radical intervention of that apocalyptic event in all of our lives. See, an apocalypse is not just about an end times uh, how we traditionally think about it. But I think that, you know, as Chris said, there he Father wants to bring an apocalypse into our lives right now to prepare us for that face-to-face -face that we are going to be having with him. So thank you, Chris. Next up, we have my dear friend, John Diffenderfer. And John, he's a lead pastor of Mercy Collective in Nashville, Tennessee, here right close to where we are here in Chattanooga. And uh, I, want, I love him. I love his heart because he, his heart is so after the restoration of the Holy Spirit to God's people, the gifts of the Holy Spirit to see the body upright in their gifts. And for there to be, a, at the same time, a good balance of truth, accountability, wisdom, responsibility surrounding the works and walking out the Holy Spirit for all of us. So John is going to be speaking to us a little bit about spiritual gifts, among other things. Thank you, John, and welcome. Hi, good to be with you guys today. I'm John Diffenderfer here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I just want to take a few minutes today as we are in this Feast of Weeks, this Pentecost season, and building up to the day of Pentecost. I uh, just wanted to get together with you as we gather together on this event and talk to you about the necessity of spiritual gifts for the gospel. I know a lot of us are believers. We've heard about spiritual gifts our whole lives. We've hopefully experienced a lot of them. <laughs> uh, but I think a lot of times we, we kind of make this mistake 
when it comes to the the necessity of the spiritual gifts. A lot of times in different denominations and backgrounds and congregations, um, we sort of think that we can fulfill our mission and fulfill our purpose and our ministries. And if we happen to encounter a spiritual gift, that's just like an added benefit. But I think what you see in scripture is quite the opposite. It's that everything hinges upon spiritual gifts. And so I just want to kind of explore that with you today as we prepare uh, for this holy day, as we get into this holy day itself. Um, It's a holiday, traditionally, that we focus on the giving of the Holy Spirit. We focus on the the fire on the mountain that came for God's people and all that that brings. And I think it's so important that we get this piece right, because if we don't, um, we can do a lot of things in our own strength, but without the Spirit of God, there's not a whole lot we can do to really move the spirits of people toward the Spirit of God. So a lot of this comes from John 16, um, verse 8 through 14. It says, When he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment regarding sin because they do not believe me. This is Yeshua talking. It says, And regarding righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And regarding judgment, because the ruler of the world has been judged, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them at this present time. But when he, the spirit of truth, and that's always key, because who is the truth, you know? Um, when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Again, it's speaking directly about Yeshua. But he will guide you in that truth, and he will not speak on his own. He'll speak whatever he hears. Um, he will disclose to you what is to come. And the key is really this, it's verse 14, he will glorify me. So it's Yeshua saying that the Holy Spirit will glorify him, Yeshua, for he will take from mine and he will disclose it to you. So in this text, what we see is this higher purpose of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that he'll be our comforter. It's not just that he'll be our counselor. It's not just that he will provide certain amounts of strength or ability, although certainly he will. But all of this exists so that... Yeshua can be glorified. And in this, we see that there's this purpose of the Holy Spirit, this reason why God comes in this way, the reason why we have the gifts of the Spirit, and it is to glorify Yeshua. And I know a lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we kind of get it twisted, and we have this approach, especially in congregations a lot of times, we'll sit around and, and we'll talk about spiritual gifts, and the perspective, I think, that a lot of times pervades, especially here in our American society, is we kind of have this attitude of what's in it for me. Um, you know, we'll hear about a, the abilities that the Holy Spirit can give us and that God wants to give us through the Holy Spirit. But we sit back and we question, like, well, what's in it for me? Or we start immediately thinking about how if I had that gift, or if people in my ministry had that gift, or if people in my family had that gift, how would that benefit me? And so our perspective immediately changes. And instead of obsessing and focusing all of our attention on him and glorifying him, we immediately think like, oh, if I have this gift, if I could heal people, if I could do these sorts of things, imagine what that would do for my finances. Imagine what that would do for my ministry. Imagine what that would do for my reputation. Imagine how credible I would be if that was the case. And just that heart position already reveals this fundamental problem that is really common um, because we lose the fact that it's all about him. 
And then, of course, we sit back and wonder why the gifts of the Spirit seem to be so fleeting or so rare. Uh, but all of these things, working of miracles, prophecy, teaching, tongues, um, all of these are gifts that exist for a single purpose, according to Scripture. They exist for the gospel of Yeshua. And if you read through the book of Acts, every great work that's listed in the book of Acts, and really it's true throughout all of Scripture, but specifically, all you have to do is look at the book of Acts, you see that every work that's listed cites these extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. It was never that so-and-so just went to town and delivered an amazing spellbinding PowerPoint presentation, or someone came through and was an extraordinarily gifted musician, and somehow that produced this wave of revival that swept around the whole world. That's never the case. Instead, what we always see in the gospel testimonies especially, and then in the book of Acts in particular, it really comes to home, but really throughout all of scripture, it's that they relied daily on the gifts of the Spirit. They acknowledged the Spirit when he was moving. And it really is true that in their weakness, he was strong. I know for us as Americans, you know, there's so many self-help books and how-tos, and we try to model things off of other things that we think are successful, and we lose so much of that. A good example of this is Paul's ministry. Um, obviously a very spirit-filled ministry. Uh, he exemplified so many of these spiritual gifts that Yeshua had promised that were then delivered. He talked about them probably more than anyone in detail at least. And he has this to say about his own ministry. So you're talking about one of the most spiritually gifted people who was out there, but also one of the people who was one of the greatest theologians of his time. He was one of the most learned men. He was one of the most intellectual people. He's able to create these highly complex theologies and arguments that he does throughout all of his work, but he has this to say when he speaks to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come to you as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, and him crucified. I also was with you in weakness and fear and in great trembling and in my message and in my preaching. They were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind, but on the power of God. And how sharply does that stand in contrast to us? to myself, to, to so many of our efforts, you know, we get invited into a place or we have the opportunity to share something and we agonize about preparing the most sophisticated, intelligent, wise demonstration of whatever topic we're teaching. Hopefully we're teaching the gospel, but unfortunately that's pretty rare too these days. But Paul here, he's speaking to one of the, this is one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. He's speaking to these believers who became believers just shortly, a few years after the second chapter of Acts, and, and he's saying that he came to them, obviously having all this knowledge, having this experience, having this personal wisdom that he could have imparted with them, but instead of doing any of that, instead of relying on that, he didn't try to be persuasive, he didn't try to be wise, he didn't try to demonstrate his superior intellect or some sort of great revelation. Instead, all he did was he just came in absolute humility and in the simplest way. It even says in fear and trembling and weakness, the sort of language he uses to describe how he didn't rely on any of his own abilities. Instead, he simply allowed the Spirit of God 
the power of God to flow out of him and into that congregation. And because of that, it started a legacy of faith that now, 2,000 years later, we're still learning from that congregation. We're still learning from Paul himself. It's just an incredible contrast, I think, to so much of what we see today in this world. How closely Paul and the other apostles, they relied on the gifts of the Spirit and not their own strength. This kind of comes to a head uh, in a variety of different ways throughout scripture, but um, we see this modeling that Yeshua did. And then we see it kind of extrapolated out throughout the book of Acts where the believers took what they had been taught, the disciples, the apostles, and those around them, they took what they'd been taught, what they'd seen for a few years, and then they lived it out. Um, And we really see the strength of the lesson that they learned. In Acts 2, there's another good example of this. Uh, Acts 2, verse 37 through 39. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what are we to do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children And for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The power of the Holy Spirit here, the promise that even Peter is presenting to this audience, obviously it's in the second chapter of Acts, this is the hallmark Pentecost moment. But the power of the Holy Spirit is so that you can minister like Yeshua did. Peter didn't stand up here and say, hey, subscribe to my Instagram, uh, be sure you donate to my ministry, you know, do all these other things. And not that there's anything inherently wrong with that, but that was not the source of why his ministry existed. Instead, the, the source of it all and, and the wisdom he presented was just the absolute simple wisdom that he learned from Yeshua himself. He hearkens back to that baptism moment where Yeshua is baptized by John the Baptist in this call to repentance. He sees the heavens open and the voice of God and the Holy Spirit descending on him. And Peter takes that instance that he observed and turns it into the the gospel lesson. And he presents this ministry of Yeshua where he calls the lost to repentance. It's that initial act of repentance that, that... turn from the denial of Yeshua as the Messiah, as Lord, as God. He takes them through that initial act of repentance, commands baptism, and promises them that that they will receive the Holy Spirit, which is a promise we can stand on. And really what he's doing in this is he's encouraging and inviting them to participate in the first of the Ten Commandments, uh, the glorification of putting God where he, in his rightful place. And then he has this promise that if they do all of that, essentially they'll be empowered to carry the same message to others. And it's only by the Spirit that you can have any impact in doing any of that. You know, the message of Peter wasn't do these things, repent and be saved so that you can be righteous, although of course that comes. It wasn't repent and be saved so you can have certain supernatural abilities, although of course that comes. But it was this call directly back to the gospel. So often when we read the second chapter of Acts, we focus on all of the supernatural phenomenon, which are certainly valuable and they served their purpose. But when he gets to the the crux of the moment, 
when people have already seen the signs, they've heard the wonders, the, the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire and the people speaking in tongues and all of those things, he doesn't make those an end unto themselves. Instead, he realizes that all of that exists just for the gospel of Yeshua. And he never misses that moment. I think so often as we go through our faith today and in so many different groups, we pursue the gifts, but we don't really pursue the gift giver. We pursue the Holy Spirit for its benefits, and certainly those are limitless, but we aren't really pursuing the one who is the Holy Spirit, the one whose spirit it is, the one behind the manifestation of the gifts. And I think it's just this juxtaposition that we see when we compare our lives to how they ministered that leaves so much to be desired. But the reality is, like, I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor, I, I do this kind of stuff all day, every day. And I can tell you from experience, as well as having witnessed so many of my friends and others, there are people who live and minister in the Spirit. And the hallmark of that is that it always points directly to the Gospel. But there are far too many times when I and others, certainly, when we've tried to do things in our own strength or in our own flesh, but the reality is these are spiritual gifts. Our ability to teach and to preach and to bring the gospel to anyone. If we try to do it in our own flesh, okay, hopefully no harm is done, but at best we're really just like bringing arguments that will probably lead to death. But in the spirit, those same words, perhaps, can come to life and bring new life. We are able to extend the call to baptism, the call to forgiveness, restoration, and right standing with God. One thing I love about this ministry in particular, um, it's that, of course, they embrace the whole Bible. They, they stand on the word of God. They do the best they can to use the platforms that God has enabled to, to reach out but those things are never an end unto themselves. And I think so much of us in this world needs to learn that same lesson, that there is a point to all of this. And that point is a person and a name. That point is Yeshua. There's a difference, a huge difference between being a person teaching and a person teaching by the spirit. There's a huge difference between a person carrying fire and a person carrying strange fire on the teaching front like you can convey information that might engage someone's mind that's one way to do it if you do it in your flesh but in the spirit it cuts straight to the heart and brings them to the feet of Yeshua and what they find is that he's the only one they've ever needed and so I would encourage you as we get into this as, as we celebrate the feast of weeks and the day of Pentecost to test the fruit of your circles. If they're not driving you toward Yeshua, they're not spirit-filled. I don't know how to say it gently, but it's the truth. If the presentation of, or the promises or the, even the manifestation perhaps of supernatural things, if they are not driving every single one of us continuously back to the feet of Christ, we may be motivated by something, but it's not the full power of the Holy Spirit.
And so I just want to encourage you as we go through this day, this year, this season, and really Pentecost is such a picture of where the church is and has been for the last 2,000 years as we wait for the return of trumpets. We need to desire spiritual gifts. They are essential. You cannot preach the gospel effectively without spiritual gifts. Those spiritual gifts are the ministry gifts, they're the supernatural gifts, they're all of the gifts listed in scripture. But we have to understand their purpose. And their purpose is the glory of Yeshua alone. Everything else, as Paul says, everything else you can count as loss. Nothing else even comes close to mattering compared to the perfection of who he is. So I pray that we would never take our eyes off of that. I pray that you would experience spiritual gifts, that the, the Holy Spirit would fill you and fill you full, but that you would do so in a way where your heart is so positioned that the moment that you have those experiences with the Holy Spirit, you just stand back in just an absolute awe and reverence for the very one who sent him, the very one whose spirit he belongs to. And so I pray that you'll be blessed. I thank you for this opportunity to meet with you guys. Um, it's a really special thing that's happening in the world right now. And the Holy Spirit is alive and active. The Father gave him and he never took him back. And we have a lot of work to do. So y'all be blessed. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. Thank you, John. So that was so good. You know, I think it all comes down to how we ought to be so reliant on the Father. Not even though we understand, yes, he's given us natural gifts. He's maybe given us intellect, uh, wisdom, but we have to still realize how incredibly weak we are without him as our life giver, that every breath is from him. And if that's actually true, how can we expect to move the hearts of men by our own abilities when it is really by his Holy Spirit that the power to change hearts can go forth? And, you know, he is another thing that John said that I want to highlight. He said the Holy Spirit isn't about benefiting us. It's about his kingdom. We should be careful of getting excited about the Holy Spirit for the wrong reason, getting excited about him because he is now the next tool that we can use to build something for ourselves, whether that's a ministry, influence, popularity in, among believers or whatever it is. Let's remember that he is not to be sold. He is not to be used for anything else, but what he has been given for to empower us to proclaim the gospel, the true gospel of Yeshua most effectively and to share the love of Christ with the world. And, you know, jumping onto that, I love how he said that we cannot pursue the gifts without first pursuing the gift giver. And this comes from a place of humility being a servant where even if no one knows your name, you are out there showing the love of Yeshua, walking in the fruits of the Spirit, as well as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, where the focus is purely Yeshua and the gospel. Amen. So uh, next up, we, are, we have Dr. David Jones. Dr. David Jones, PhD, is the senior pastor of Ruach 
Ministries International in Tampa Bay, Florida. And I love him because he has such a heart for teaching the Torah, both in his congregation and online. But he also has a heart for the Holy Spirit and this restoration of spiritual gifts that John likewise also just talked about. Uh, Dr. David Jones has a book called The Restoration and the Gifts of the Spirit, which wherein he wrote about a lot of what we're talking about here today many years ago. Uh, so anyway, Dr. David Jones, without further ado, thank you so much for joining us. Shalom, everybody. I am Dr. David Jones with Ruach Ministries International in Brandon, Florida, in Tampa Bay. I want to share some things with you today regarding Shavuot, Yeshua, and the Ruach. All of these things that we see, the, the, the festivals of Yahweh, they're very prophetic, very profound. They're all teaching us different aspects of the nature of Yah himself, and they all reveal Yeshua, the life of Yeshua, the work of Yeshua, all these things that are relevant in our lives for today. One of the things we see here, Passover being about redemption, the first fruits being, of course, Yeshua being the first fruit, raising from the dead and presenting himself to Yahweh as the first fruit. And if the first is received as holy, then the rest is holy. We're the rest, right? Then about uh, unleavened bread, about Yeshua uh, teaching us to eat a sinless life, about having no leaven in our life and doing that. Then you have this 50-day count to Shavuot. And this is also where Israel, when they came out of Mitzrayim, they were in the wilderness for this period of 50 days. And when Yahweh came town and gave the Torah on Mount Sinai, this was Shavuot. But when he came down and he gave the word, he didn't just say, hey, here's some tablets. He came down and he revealed his spirit to his people. He spoke to Moshe. He, 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 he had talked to the people about their lives and what he had planned for them, about how I brought you to myself. He spoke lovingly to them. I've redeemed you. I've done all these things for you. And I've got big plans for you ahead. I want you to walk with me as we go there. That's kind of what Shavuot is teaching us about as well. When we are redeemed, we are born again then we need to get to his word to teach us his voice, how to hear him. And he does that by his ruach, by his spirit. It's not just about reading the letters on a page. It's about being written in you, about being put on your heart. And so we read this, and, and today we're going to talk about Shavuot, about Yeshua, and the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, and all of this equipping you to walk in the word of Yah, right? Okay, let's get into it. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, we're going to look at her really quick. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Yeshua began to do and he teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So all of this he's saying that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is going to come and be imparted to you. 
And this is going to equip you to be witnesses and to go forth and to help establish the kingdom in your midst, to go help all these things to be. And so what does it have to do with us today? It's the same. It's exactly the same. It's his Holy Spirit that equips us to live this life. Okay, so backing up here, before I get too far ahead of myself, backing up here, this was a time during Passover and Shavuot in this counting of the Omer, this seven, this 50 days that are given there, and they're to count by seven weeks and a day. You know, count seven weeks, count 49 days, and then the next day, the 50th day. So there's an emphasis on all of this. Uh, five and its derivatives are often used showing grace. And this was the 40th day, 10 days until Shavuot. In other words, when my grace comes upon you, when my Ruach HaKodesh, when my spirit comes upon you, you will walk fully in the grace that I have given to you. And he said, how? This is because he will send the Comforter. He will send the Holy Spirit to you. He will be baptized in this and he will equip you for the things that lay ahead. So what's the purpose of this? Okay, so this is where things can get they can get pretty technical and they can get pretty controversial. And all I want to do today is just to show you the purpose that Yeshua says the Holy Spirit was being sent. I'm not talking about the manifestations of the Spirit. I'm not talking about the gifts. I'm not talking about all, all these different things. I'm talking about what purpose did Yeshua himself say, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Okay, to be witnesses, of course. But regarding what? So let's go back. When did Yeshua say, I'm going to send you the Spirit? And that was back in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15 is what we're going to look at. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So what are the things we see so far? First off, Bring conviction, okay? He didn't say, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit just to give you goosebumps. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to make you feel good. He says, I'm going to send him to bring conviction. Regarding what? To point to the need for the Messiah. All have sin, right? How would I know sin if the Torah didn't say what sin was? That's, that's what we learn, right? To define sin, to define righteousness, to define judgment. And then we learn that the Messiah is the goal of the Torah. That the, that the Torah is to lead us to him, to bring us into the presence of Yahweh. Okay, uh, back to John chapter 16, verse 9. It says, concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, Look at this. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. So he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He doesn't say when the spirit of truth comes, he'll be uh, just telling you what's in the future, you know, telling you what lottery numbers to play. We, we often think, you know, so dealing in the spiritual realm, right? You're going you're gonna, to like tell me my future. And that's not it. Okay? It's to tell you the heart of the Father, to tell you the heart of God, so to learn to walk in His ways. We do this by guiding us in the truth. So we have to know what truth is, right? You know, we, we hear, the truth will set you free, but that's only part of it. He says, first off, you're, if you're my disciples, you'll know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. If you're not his disciples, you're not going to know the truth. And then what you call the truth is not going to be the truth. So we first and foremost must be his disciples, must be disciples of the Most High. Then we will know the truth. Why? Because we are his disciples. Disciple means student. So we are learning his word. We are, we are being instructed in the word. Therefore, we know what the truth is because he wrote it down for us. And so we're learning the truth. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth. You can't say he's going to guide us in all falsehood. He's going to guide us in all truth. Psalm 119, 142 says, Your righteousness is eternal righteousness, and your Torah is truth. Romans 2.20 says, In the Torah you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. John 17.17, 17, Yeshua says, Sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. Things about the Torah. It's not just true. It is the truth. You can have many things, many different places that have some aspects of truth. A lot of things that are true. There's only one absolute truth, and that is the word of Yahweh. So then he says that when he comes, he will not speak of his own initiative. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not going to speak something apart from the word that you have already been given. See that? He's not going to speak of his own initiative. He's going to speak from the voice of the Father. Much like we see in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 to 20, it says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken to my words that he shall speak in my name will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word of my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, but that he shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. This prophet that rose up, I believe, is Yeshua. Okay, back to John 16, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it, that means to give it, to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does it mean when he says he will take what is mine and declare it to you? Guys, Yeshua was equipped by the Father to complete the task at hand by his Spirit. He was sent to do something. And so everything that Yahweh gave to Yeshua, Yeshua says, I'm giving to you. Everything was given to Yeshua. Authority over death and hell. Authority to operate in the earth. Authority to advance the kingdom of Yahweh here on earth was given to you. Because all that was given to Yeshua, he says, I've given to you. So what was the purpose? Why would Yahweh equip us with his Ruach Elohim? With the Ruach HaKodesh? Why would Yahweh equip us with his spirit? Is it just to do whatever we want? Is it just to, uh, to, to learn about how to better my life? Why would God equip us with his spirit? Very simple. We really think about it. To teach us and equip us to walk in his ways. Scripture says that people will see the good things that you do, and they will glorify your Father in heaven. That's what it's about. When people look at you, they see you as a reflection, as an image of God. When it says that Adam was made in God's image, the word there, which means image, can be a shadow. <laughs> so we're made in his image. We're made in his shadow. We're made to look like him, to be like him, to do the things 
that he's asked us to do. He's not going to ask us to do something without equipping us to do that. And so when he sends his Holy Spirit to us, he is equipping us to walk in his ways. He is not going to send us his Holy Spirit to walk contradictory to his ways. He is equipping us for the task at hand. What is the task at hand? Go into the world. Be my witnesses. How do we be a witness? Testify of what has changed in our life and do the works he has asked us to do. Ezekiel eleven seventeen to 21 says, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they shall come thither, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof and all the abominations thereof from there. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He says, I will give, the, I will give you a new spirit. Well, whose spirit are we going to get? His. His spirit. So I will put a new spirit within you. He will put his spirit within you. Verse 20. Why? Why is he going to give us a new spirit? Why is he going to give us his spirit? Look at Ezekiel eleven twenty. That they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for them whose heart walks after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way on their own heads, says the Lord God. See that? He says, I give you my spirit to equip you to walk in my word. He did not say, I'm going to give you my spirit, so as I'm going to do something new, because the word that I gave you before apparently didn't work, and I messed it up, so I'm going to try something else. Not at all. He says, I'm giving you this to equip you to go into the world, build my kingdom, be my witnesses. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27 says, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Verse 26, A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. Why? And cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So what was the purpose that Yahweh, that God himself says he's giving his Holy Spirit to us? To equip us to walk in his word. What purpose do we see that John writes? 1 John 2, 5 and 6. But whoso keeps his word, In him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. What was the purpose of of his spirit being in us? To walk like our king. To walk like the one who set us free. To walk like the one who redeemed us. To walk like he walked. Amen, Dr. Jones. Thank you for sharing that we ought to walk as he walked if we say we abide in him. Guys, I think we should always bring it back to that simplicity. And, you know, if you're ever confused about theology, about, you know, what you're supposed to do, what your walk is supposed to look like, take it back to what did Yeshua do? What did Jesus do? Imitate him. And I promise you when you get face to face with him one day he is going to be pleased about your walk because he's coming back for a bride equally yoked who 
was like he is. Now, you know, I think also what he said about how the importance of good fruit is something that we ought never to overlook. How it's not about just looking spiritual. You know, it's not just about looking like, oh, I have a lot of good theology or I have a lot of knowledge or whatever. But do you actually bear good fruit when no one is looking? Do you actually bear fruits of the spirit, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control and so on? When no one is looking, when you are alone in your private life, that is so key to walk in the Holy Spirit. You're right. And I love how he said the Holy Spirit does not equip us to walk contrary to our father's ways, but rather in obedience to his ways. And it is given to equip you to go into the world, to build his kingdom and to be his witnesses. So good. Amen. Next up is my brother and friend, Nathan Harmon. Nathan and his wife and the rest of his family spends their time traveling the United States and the world, for that matter, proclaiming the gospel. They are they have a real heart for reaching the youth, but young and old are blessed by their ministry. His heart is for spirit and truth restoration. His heart is to see God's people walk as Yeshua walked. Now, he also has a um, organization uh, Your Life Speaks, where he travels and speaks at many schools regarding substance abuse, mental health towards the kids. And he's doing wonderful work there as well. Now, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us, brother. We really appreciate you being with us. Good evening, everyone watching. Good morning to some of you probably on the other side of the world. I'm excited to get to spend a few moments with you here on this Shavuot. My name is Nathan Harmon, and I'm excited, hopefully, to watch many of the other great communicators and just in your home fellowships or wherever you are watching this, that you are just enjoying just the blessedness of this day. To me, honestly, when I think about Pentecost Shavuot, it's this place where for us as believers and followers of Yeshua is one of the most profound days for our faith. We know we see it in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit um, was empowered and was given to just believers that this place where you and I can now have a tangible um, intimate relationship with God through the Holy Spirit because of our belief in Yeshua when we think about words of spirit and truth this moed this appointed time truthfully comes to the top of the surface is because we know it's when the commandments were given on the mountain way back when with Moses and Mount Sinai which was the framework the roadmap the guardrails of who we are as kingdom kids the Torah but now we also on the same day get the Holy Spirit we get the water poured into the cup where you and I can now be these living vessels empowered by his presence and this is what Shavuot to me is all about where I now can walk with revelation where I can have intimacy with God, where I can press into the secret place. I heard it the other day, someone said, you can know all the Hebrew you want and still not know him. 
And because we do have the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, the breath, that when we see verses in uh, Corinthians where it says, eye hasn't seen or ear hasn't heard the things that God prepared for those that love Him that's entered into our heart. Uh, but we do have that because if you go on reading in that second chapter, it goes on to say that we have the mind of Christ. And that's to say that you and I now have the mind of our Messiah because the Holy Spirit um, desires to take its proper abode in the hearts of men. That's what Shavuot's all about. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The reality that as you work through the New Testament, the Brit, you're seeing a group of people that are now operating with revelation. This is what the Holy Spirit came to do, to reveal Himself, which Himself, our Messiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you and I can no longer have to have everybody else teach us who God is, that you can get alone with God, can open up this book, read the truth, and allow the Spirit to reveal who you are and who He is. And when you come into that proper identity, when you understand that you watching this, that God desires us to be sons and daughters of God, that we are born to have this crazy relationship where the God of heaven and earth legitimately wants to spend time with you and with me. And that's where life transformation happens. And again, this is one of the underlying so important moments of Shavuot was where the Holy Spirit was poured out, where we can now have this amazing relationship with Him where we can understand our identity. Um, and this truthfully is one of the main reasons that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so against Yeshua, because He came to bring not only the redemption as the Lamb of God, to be the Messiah, to take away um, the sin, to be the appropriation of our sin, to be the substitute of the penalty of sin, not to replace the Torah, but to pay the cost and to die a death that was meant for you and I, the gospel. But it was also bringing a revelation that we are sons and daughters. You know, one of the greatest pushbacks when I think of, of Judaism and my brother Judah, as well as, as Islam and the Muslims, is that God doesn't have sons. But the truth is this revelation of who we are as sons and daughters. The book of Hebrews says that that Yeshua wasn't afraid to call us brethren. I believe it's also in the book of Ephesians where it says we don't know what it will be like, but when he returns and when this all plays out, we will be like him. That's why it goes on, I believe in Ephesians 2, that we're seated in Christ, seated in him, in heavenly places. Um, this isn't a powerful day if we're willing to continue to say, God, I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to have everything that you've birthed and you've born me to be as your son and your daughter. 
And it's not about this self-centered gospel. It's not about this self-driven gospel of, of God, what can you do for me? But honestly, Father, I want to be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to have a testimony that Jacob said at the end of his story that God's spirit, your spirit was leading me every step of the way. And that helps us get through the difficulties, that helps us get through the, the challenges and the adversities. But ultimately, as a follower, I just want to jump in the river of God and, and be a part of whatever he's doing on the earth. And I don't want to row against the current. I don't want to make my own new current. I just want to go wherever his river is going. I love it when you see um, the Tower of Babel at the beginning in the book of Genesis. These men, you know, they're building something. And apparently what they were building, they were going to have some success because it says that God needed to go down and stop. And so he divides them up. You know, we as people, we love to build. I'm sure you watching this, if you're not careful, we love to build, right? Um, we love to co-create. But the very next part of scripture after the Tower of Babel is the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, where Abraham, leave what you have and go. Don't worry about building. I will be your provider. I will be a living presence in your life. I love it when Yeshua in, in the, the gospel of Matthew where he says, you know, don't worry about the clothes, the food, the shelter. That's what people out of covenant worry about. O ye of little faith, I clothe the lilies, I feed the birds, I will provide for you. And that really is a culmination of what we hopefully are celebrating today, the living power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that you can live a life of revelation. That's what's changed my life, you know, 13 and a half years ago. He took me from being an alcoholic, an addict, um, a hurting young man, somebody that was bent on destroying his own life. I was hurting other people. I was struggling with everything you can imagine. And then God's grace stepped into my story and he met me. And he began to reveal himself to me. And I began to pick up this book and, and said, you know what? Like it says in Hebrews, in the volume of this book, it's written of him. So I began to say, let me read the word. Let me read the Torah. Let me read the scriptures. But let me find Yeshua. And the only way I'm going to find him is by the Holy Spirit enlightening the word, guiding me in the word. It's this place of spirit and truth. The spirit, my intimacy with him, allows me to walk this thing out. It changes me from the inside out. And I'll close with this. I love the feasts, the cycles, the rhythms of the festivals because they are so connected. You know, when we began Passover and we sat down and we partook of that meal and we had the unleavened bread and we, you know, took the best part out, that middle piece, and we broke it and it became the afikoman. And, you know, we sit down and we have that third cup, that cup of redemption. And we have this piece of bread that was broken for his body. And then for the next seven days after that, you continue to partake of unleavened bread, this piece of bread that is directly connected the exact same basic substance of 
um, what we partook of at Passover. And so you're for a week really pressing in. I believe uh, there's a crazy cool connection about um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecrating of the priest and the cleansing of the leper that every year we are spiritually leprous and we have picked up um, unintentionally sometimes some of the worldly just elements of our behaviors or attitudes and he wants to remove that he wants to clean us up and and it's a great time every year for us to pause and also realize during unleavened bread that we're not and we don't have to be leprous, spiritual lepers. We can walk as sons and daughters, as a royal priesthood. And, and the, the consecrating of the priest, it has a lot of the similarities of the cleansing of the leper. And it's a whole other teaching. But I say that because it's in this week we begin to count the Omer leading up to Shavuot. And then here at Shavuot, it says in Leviticus 23 that we're to come and we're to bring an offering. But even in this offering now, we're bringing leavened bread. You know, we always see many of times leavened bread as a negative thing of hypocrisy, of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of malice and, uh, and envy and strife like we see Paul speak of in the New Testament. But here at this gathering, there was a time for us to bring leavened bread. And I would submit to you, it's just like Yeshua said in Matthew 13, that a, that the kingdom of heaven is like a piece of leaven that a woman takes and hit three measures and then it in, infects the entire body. You know, when the bread is proper and the bread isn't full of pride and envy and, and, and lust and the pride of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, when you actually can shake that all down and press in, that there's a time when what you're reproducing isn't bad because it's actually from the throne and from the river and from the very place of Yeshua that we are now beginning to display the fruit of the Spirit. You know, every year the feasts to me are a giant journey. I, I come at Passover and I partake of unleavened bread and I really re-consecrate myself as a priest at the threshold of my heart with that piece of unleavened bread for the, that week, eight days if you had Passover. But then at Shavuot, there is this counting where, you know what, okay, now continue to walk in spirit and truth. But here in a few more months, it'll be trumpets, atonement, and Sukkot. And we know that the fall feasts are all about the ingathering of fruit. It's the time when the fruits are harvested in Israel. And so every year, I look at this whole cycle constantly. You know, the Father wants me to bear good fruit. And when we get to tabernacles and we get to the fall gatherings, are you and I bearing the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, temperance and self-control? I hope that this Shavuot is a time for you to begin to open up the Bible, press in for revelation, to have the Holy Spirit lead you, change you on a heart level change you on a how you treat your family level, change you how you see the stranger level. Because it's not just about what we do and what we know, but it's also how we love. And that's only going to change by the working of the Holy Spirit, which produces fruit. So I hope you have a great rest of this gathering. 
Um, and I look forward to seeing what God is doing in your life. And hopefully, as we get to the end of the Moeds, these gatherings coming up in a few months, you and I are producing good fruit. Be blessed. Thank you, Nathan. You know, there's something that Nathan said that really stuck with me when he was talking about the leprosy. You know, when you think about leprosy, leprosy is a disease and that disease is looking for a new host. It's always looking to spread. That's why it was so contagious and why no one wanted to come near the lepers in the first century. And so it is in this world. There are leprosies in this world. And they desire to spread among us. They desire to really put us in captivity. And But Yeshua has come to set the captives free and cleanse the lepers. And he has called us in Shavuot and, you know, starting a Shavuot in our lives to set the captives free and cleanse the lepers. But for us to be able to cleanse the lepers by the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to be clean. For us to be making others clean, we need to be clean ourselves. And I think that as Nathan said, this is a really good time for us all to do introspection and ask, Lord, has the world put chains on us this year? Has the world uh, put us in bondage this year with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life? And you know what? I love, Nathan, how you said your intimacy with him and his spirit allows you to walk his word out. And I like how you talked about the importance of having intimacy with our Father in the secret place, in the quiet place. Because it is only in that place that we can then walk out. We have to get filled so we can then walk out and fill others to be fully uh, overflowing with His Holy Spirit in those living waters. So we can be able to give that living waters to others and to be able to recognize and know our identity as his son and as his daughter. And now PD will be sharing about how God desires us to break down the walls of partition that we have built between us and others and us and God. And make sure you stay till afterwards when we'll have our live Q&A with all the speakers that you've heard today. So get your questions ready. And now to PD. Tonight, I want to speak to you specifically about Shavuot as it relates to our lives practically and also what I believe God wants us to focus on this year specifically at this conference. You know, when we think about the biblical feasts, we think about the Feast of Passover where Yeshua was dying for us, giving his life as a sacrifice for us. At unleavened bread, he's put in the grave and he's resurrected on first fruits. And then we have 50 days, a countdown to Shavuot. But most central to all of these events is where Yeshua, where Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Because, of course, Paul writes to us 1 Corinthians 15 and he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. Nothing that we say tonight, nothing that you believe makes any sense if Christ has not raised from the dead. Because it means that he is king if indeed he has raised from the dead. And it means that we actually have assurance of salvation, that he can save us if he could be raised. And so I want to submit to you, this brings us to really the purpose of Shavuot. 
See, as Yeshua was raised from the dead, what happens thereafter is the 50-day countdown to Shavuot where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people. And suddenly, Shavuot becomes the modern witness of the resurrection, not just an ancient witness of the resurrection, not just a, a, an event that happened 2000 years ago where Peter said, guys, the Holy Spirit was just poured out. You're speaking in tongues. Something supernatural is taking place. And the reason this is taking place is because Yeshua indeed raised from the dead, the one whom you crucified. It's not just that ancient kind of witness as Peter stood and said that, but it's a witness today, a modern witness. Because let me ask you, have you been a witness of the resurrection? I mean, have you seen Christ resurrect from the dead? How, how do we know what evidence is there that what we're talking about here tonight even has any true value, that he in, indeed has truly been raised? I want to submit to you that we have witnessed his resurrection in witnessing the power of his resurrection working inside of us and inside other believers. That that reality of how I can see that I have been spiritually resurrected from the dead, that I was once dead, that I was once uh, like bones, but that he has come to bring my bones together, to put flesh upon me and put life in me by his resurrection. He has resurrected me spiritually. And so I want to submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this is what the Holy Spirit, the one who has been sent when Yeshua said he can be coming to you when I go. That is why I leave so he can come. He comes to change us to empower us, to set us free from sin and to empower us even supernaturally to walk like he did, not just in being free from sin, but walking in the power of his freedom to set others free. I want to take you to Acts chapter four, verse 13 here tonight, where we read this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I want to ask you something, you know, what's amazing about this is that these men, right? These disciples standing before this, this judgment, right? Before the Sanhedrin, these leaders of the day, these religious leaders, right? And, and they're standing there and the leaders look at them and see, well, these are uneducated men. They're common men. They, they have nothing special about them. They are not like us. They are not even worthy to be in this place, perhaps. But they see something. It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Wow. What does it take to be recognized that you have been with Jesus? 
When someone looks at you, at your life, at how you carry yourself, at how you speak. And I'm not talking just about how you are when you go to church, when you put on a face. I'm not talking about when things go well. I'm talking about when you're pressed. I'm talking about when you're in private. I'm talking about when things go wrong. When you, because these people, these disciples, these apostles are standing and they're being persecuted. And in this manner, they manifest fruit. That when others look at them, they say, these men have been with Yeshua, for they look like Yeshua. See, brothers, I want to submit to you that when your opponents look upon you, they need to be speechless because they recognize Yeshua upon you. Not that they think I look at you and say, oh, look, it must just be because he's popular. Or it must be because he's he's very spiritual. No. He was with Yeshua. But what does it mean to be recognized that you've been with him? See, the apostles, one thing they did is a man was healed by a spiritual gift of healing. And so it says that the Pharisees had nothing to say in opposition. Because what can you say against a clear move of the Holy Spirit? So not only do we see that you start doing the things that Jesus, that Yeshua did, but you start speaking and acting the way he did with good fruit. And the way that they could do that is they were able to hear and follow his voice because they were hearing the and following the Holy Spirit's leading. How? Because they were in the presence of Yeshua was when he was in the flesh and the Holy Spirit sounds like his voice. They are one in the same. And then you have to ask, well, what's the cost? Because see, there was a cost to be with Yeshua for the disciples. They needed to give up their life to follow him. They need to leave everything behind. But today I fear that we're not willing to give everything up. I fear that we want to give a little up, but yet have all of him. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. And see, I want to submit to you that when there's something that we struggle to give up, what we're really saying is we adore the presence of that thing more than the presence of our king. If we don't want to give up our pride, we adore the presence of pride in our life more than the presence of our king. If we don't want to give up the bitterness that we have towards a brother, we love the bitterness more than our king. If we don't want to give up the presence of self-sufficiency and reliance on ourselves alone, what we're giving up is the presence of our king. When, whatever we do, these things, they build walls, walls of partition between us and other people and us and God himself. For God said in Matthew 5 verse 23, that if you want to make an offering, if you want to make a sacrifice, if you want to basically follow me, if you want to celebrate this feast of Shavuot and bring an acceptable offering to me, but you recognize that you have something at odd with your brother, that your brother has something at odd with you. Go and make things right first and then you come and bring your offering. But don't you bring your offering. Don't you dare come into my presence and act like everything's okay when you know it's not. See, when nothing, when something is wrong between us and men, something is wrong between us and God. 
That's why he said in Matthew 6:15 that if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, your Father in heaven will not forgive you of yours. Do you believe that for what it says? Because the implications are dire. If you do not if you do not forgive the brother who has hurt you and sinned against you, your Father will not forgive you. What does that mean for us when we stand face to face before him, but we never dealt with the unforgiveness in our hearts? What does it really mean for us? See, brothers and sisters, Shavuot is a feast about breaking down these walls of partition. That's why the Samaritan woman, when Yeshua was speaking to her, she was astonished because she said to him in, in John 4, verse 9, you know, I am a Samaritan woman and you a Jew. Why do you ask a drink from me? See, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of freedom who breaks down barriers. And even if though the Samaritans and the Jews had great barriers, the Samaritans at the time of the birth of Yeshua has profaned the temple in Jerusalem, scattering bones in the sanctuary. They they did not even agree with the Jews on where the temple is. They had their own copy of the Torah. Theologically, they have many disagreements. They added to the Ten Commandments and their unique copy of the Torah. There is a lot of disagreement here. There's a lot to fight about. There's a lot to be bitter about. There's a lot of hurts of the past. But Yeshua does not allow any of the unforgiveness, any of the profanity that the Samaritans have done against his father's law or temple. Yeshua did not, even as being who he is, the God of that temple, he did not himself allow himself to be offended, but instead he came with love, compassion and dialogue, offering this woman living water, the salvation itself. What greater love is there than that? Later laying his life down to die for her and all of Samaria, as he did for you and me. That forgiveness, that love for our enemies must be with us as it was with Yeshua. If we want to call ourselves his disciples, we cannot let theological differences, hurts of the past or even cultural differences, whether that's skin color, history or may I dare say in America, politics cause us to not love someone else, have compassion on someone else and reach out to share the gospel of salvation with someone else. See, brothers and sisters, if we want to talk about Shavuot, if we want to talk about Lord, bring your mighty winds of change. God, God, bring your mighty spirit to pour out gifts and do miracles among us. Oh, Lord, come and change us. If you want the Acts chapter 2, verse 2, you better have Acts chapter 2, verse 1. If you want to have the mighty winds of the Holy Spirit of Acts chapter 2, verse 2, you need to have verse 1 where it's said, and when the day of Pentecost has fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. And that word for one accord is one mind. They were one minded. They were in unity. They were not full of unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and infighting with one another. They were in unity. It doesn't mean they were in in agreement over every did and dot of theology, but they were in unity. And then it says in verse two, suddenly there came a mighty rushing wind and they spoke in tongues. See, brothers and sisters, we want to say, God, God, come and do it. God is not doing anything until we do something. 
And that's to cleanse our hearts from all wickedness that we have, that we have brought to us through not releasing others, through holding hatred towards others, whether it's theological or personal or, or the fact that someone has sinned against you, whatever it is. Brothers and sisters, there is so much at stake here. The very witness of the resurrection that we ought to be, the fact that our lives are supposed to be a modern day witness is what is at stake. See, when people see you, what do they see? Do they see you like some archaeological dig site full of dead bones? Or they do they see when they see your life, that the bones have come together and flesh has been put over and that the spirit of God has come and made home in that temple and that there is true life that has been placed in you because that is what it truly means to be filled by the spirit. See, to be filled by the spirit is not what theology you hold. To be filled by the spirit is not about what, what how smart you are. To be filled is not about winning every debate or having all the knowledge in the world. To be filled by the spirit is to walk in the spirit as he walked and to have fruits of the spirit. And if you do not have that, then you are not a witness of the resurrection. And when others see you, they will shake their fist at God instead of admire the witness of the resurrection that you are coming to him in joy of receiving salvation themselves. May you be alive in Yeshua. Father, I pray, Lord, tonight that you would come of your spirit and convict us like a sword. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would come and Lord, just break open every bit of unforgiveness, hatred and undealt with business that we have between each other and between whether it's believers or unbelievers, family members or friends. Father, I pray that you would come and give us strength and empowerment. Lord, by if we want to proclaim you, Lord, we cannot say we cannot say that it is impossible for you to bring reconciliation and freedom in our relationships. If you are the creator of heaven and earth, if you are the one we serve here tonight, Lord, we have to believe that you are the one who can mend things again. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would come and do a work of forgiveness and restitution in us all to break down, break down every dividing wall of partition, culturally, spiritually, theologically and physically. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your gift of the spirit. Come, Lord, and work among us. Give us your spiritual gifts. Give us your freedom. We pray all this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me for this word. I am excited because tonight we are moving into the next section now of this broadcast. We're going to be going into the Q&A panel discussion where me, alongside all of the teachers here tonight, are going to be discussing Shavuot as a group discussion. And we're going to be taking questions from you from the live stream here tonight. We're going to be looking at Facebook and YouTube. So make your way to the chat box now and start asking questions regarding any of the sermons tonight to any of the speakers. Please direct it to the speaker and we'll be bringing them up as we move into the next section.
We're also going to be having a small uh, break right now as we prepare for this. And I want to ask you to consider if this broadcast tonight has been blessing you, if these speakers have been a blessing to you, consider sowing into their ministries by making a donation here tonight. We are bringing all of this free of charge so no no one has to pay to hear the gospel, but nothing comes without cost either. So if this has blessed you, consider sowing into this. Uh, Please stay tuned and we'll see you after this short break.
Shalom, shalom. What an honor it is to be here with you for this live Q&A. I'm excited to be joined by all of these wonderful speakers here with us. Guys, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but I know the father is in it all and we're going to figure all of this out as we move along here tonight. Um, guys, you've been asking a lot of questions and um, tonight I'm just going to open up with some of them. I would like to move ahead uh, with some of uh, a question that was posed to uh, David Wilbur here. And the question is, my family doesn't keep the feasts and I don't have a fellowship. How can I celebrate Pentecost alone? Right, David, I don't know if you got that. She, so she's asking for someone who like doesn't have family keeping the feasts, who doesn't have fellowship, how can they move into doing that even if they don't have uh, individuals who do that with them right well i mean that's not a you know uh an ideal place to be obviously we we you know would love to to have fellowship we'd love to have uh, our, our family on board with with our convictions and uh, i can definitely understand the struggle there but you know you you do have fellowship uh with Yeshua, uh, at the very least, and uh, you do have opportunity to commune commune with him. And uh, so, I would, um, uh, you know, there's a few things that you could do. It's a it's a, a day of rest. It's to be treated like a Sabbath. Uh, so, as much as you can, try to set that day apart as a a day of rest, a day that you can dedicate to to um, to the Lord and uh, to and there are a couple other things you can do on your own that that are traditions. Uh, read the Book of Ruth, for example, um, and like I mentioned in my talk, and and uh, you know study the Bible and uh, and just uh, press into the Father and and ask Him to uh, to just uh, allow you to experience His presence in, in a profound way and. So if there is just absolutely no fellowship around you um, for Shavuot, um, you know, those are some things that you can do alone. Uh, if you're celebrating on Sunday, um, you know, there's, there's differences if people are celebrating uh, tonight and tomorrow uh, or, or if they're celebrating on Sunday. Uh, well, there's churches that meet on Sunday. So uh, you can still go and, and uh, celebrate with a, a Sunday uh, uh church uh, on that day uh, if nothing else but but just to be around other believers you know we are even though um you know they they don't acknowledge the feast days they do acknowledge yeshua and uh you do have that uh communion there with those other believers so that that uh, that would be another opportunity so i'm, I'm just thinking very practically uh some yeah. things that you can do to to still honor the feast day and, and still uh benefit uh you know, and from that. Um, so those are just a, a few ideas. I, I hope they help. I, I just want to follow up with that, David, um, because there's another question that's basically just on the on the heels of that. And it's from Desiree. Mm -hmm. And she says, uh, thanks for this. Here's my question. Why are we celebrating Shavuot today and Pentecost on Sunday for Christians? 
when it's supposed to be the same. What would you say to help bring clarity there? So, so is the question basically why why is there a difference uh, yeah. in in the calendar? You know, why why do well, some people? Yes, is yeah, that yeah. the question? Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, this is a very old debate. Uh, this we we know that the the Pharisees and the and a segment of the Sadducees actually uh, debated this in the first century as well. Uh, we read from Josephus uh, that there were differences between certain Jewish sects regarding uh, when to celebrate the Feast of Shavuot. And it, go it comes down to some ambiguity in the biblical text uh, concerning when to begin counting the Yomer. Uh, so the uh, commandment is to start the count after, uh, you know, after the first fruits uh, and uh, you know, there is to, it's to start the count after the Sabbath. And so there is a question of, okay, is that the opening Sabbath within unleavened bread uh, that, that first rest day? Cause the first day of unleavened bread is, is a day of rest or is it the weekly Sabbath within unleavened bread? And so, you know, you'll be celebrating Pentecost always on Sunday or always on the 16th, 16th of Nisan, however that works out. So, so that's why there is a dis discrepancy there. And um, yeah, believers debate that. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's, I, I don't really have a strong opinion uh, on it. Uh, I think that uh, there's a lot that we cannot do anyway um, regarding the feast days. And, and so I, I don't really think um, calendar issues uh, should be uh, a a divisive thing in the community. Um, I, I think the important thing is that you're keeping the feast as best as you can. So whether that is uh, on Sunday or whether uh, you do it in accordance with the Jewish calendar, um, you know, the, the traditional Jewish calendar, they, they take the, uh, what the Pharisees believed in the first century, which is um, uh, starting the count after the opening high Sabbath. Um, whatever, whatever day you choose. Yeah. But yeah, you yeah, know, uh, I think yeah. a great answer, brother. And I think I'll, mm -hmm. I'll just add that if someone is part of a fellowship and, and you have, you know, a disagreement with your fellowship on anything calendar related, don't let that ever be like a stumbling block and say, oh, well, they're, they've got this wrong. I'm going to go somewhere else. Like, I, I don't think that that's the father's heart. I think the best way to celebrate the feast is with other believers. And if that's at all possible, that should be pursued above a calendar disagreement because there's a good chance that that we're all wrong uh, to some extent on something so uh, we don't want to like break fellowship of people over of, over such issues there's definitely going to be a day though where Yeshua is going to come back and he's going to set everything straight and all of us are going to know exactly uh, where we stand on all of these things yeah um, so and cool. what, what I always tell people is uh, do it the day that your fellowship is doing it that that's yeah. that's my good. advice and so um yeah, whatever day they decide that that's the uh, uh, that's the day you should do it. Great so. uh, question to John Defendifer. Uh So much division in the body of Messiah, and it's affecting our young people and turning them away from God. How can we, as the body of Messiah, be a better example of Yeshua and walk in the Holy Spirit to our families this Shavuot? and onwards? That is a big question. <laughs> how do we how do we single handedly uh, unite 2000 years of division? Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I mean, I think the biggest thing is we have to stop obsessing about our differences. You know, as believers, especially in like our world, like I've always been Messianic Hebrew roots, you know, whatever you want to call it. That's how we were both raised and how we raise our families in this community. Uh, but it, it's always, it's funny to me because we sit back, you know, as conservative, Messianic Hebrew, spirit-filled, whatever term you want to use. We have all these terms to describe ourselves. Uh, and oftentimes we use those more to differentiate ourselves than to find common ground. And then we sit here with, you know, judgment among other people looking out into the world and all of their crazy new letters and labels and how they describe themselves. And we recognize the ridiculousness and the divisiveness of that, but we don't see it within ourselves. And I think what we have to do is we have to put aside all of the differences that we may think matter and instead just focus on the commonalities that we absolutely have the same and they far surpass, you know, just the, the eccentricities of our community. And it puts us, when we focus everything on him, it puts us in a community of believers that is hundreds of millions strong and has existed for thousands of years. And, and then it's so easy to find that common ground. But when we take our eyes off of Yeshua and instead we just focus on like whatever doctrine or teaching or whatever that we've inherited or come across, like it's easy to become divisive. So we just need to stand firm against that and keep our eyes fixed squarely on him. Mm, that's really good. Um, you know, I would just, I would just add, you know, that when we think about, you know, how can we be the best example, just look at Yeshua, love like he did, focus on the things he focused on most and the rest will follow. But yeah, brother, that's awesome. Great ad there. And I, I want to just, just a follow up here. Um, from someone, let me see if I can get it on the screen here. Um, here we go. Uh, Taylor Biss asks the following. Many who have Torah disregard the spiritual gifts and say they are not for today. If we are around this unbelief, does that hinder us from operating in them? Can you elaborate on this issue? Uh, John, I know you, you talked about the spiritual gifts a lot in your message. Uh, what do you think about that? I don't think the use of spiritual gifts is dependent on other people's belief. Um, I mean, obviously, you look at the second chapter of Acts, there was, you know, potentially 120 that were open to the idea. But for some of them, it was probably a brand new experience the way that they had it in that moment. And everyone around them generally had not shared in those things, at least not in the context of the gospel of Yeshua. And so certainly I think spiritual gifts are not hindered because of the unbelief of others. But I would also say that it really matters, you know, for your own strength and comfort and confidence in the spirit to be in environments where spiritual gifts are normative. Um, there's a lot of denominations and Christians and other folks um, who have a wide range of interpretations about a lot of different things. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that's so deeply insecure, even in ministry, uh, that a lot of times, even if we feel really strongly about operating in a particular gift or speaking a word to someone or proclaiming a truth, a lot of times we get in our own heads so much that we then don't, or we water it down, or in some way we just compromise on that issue. And so I think that there's benefit, especially if you're new to spiritual gifts or trying to explore these things, there's tremendous benefit 
and being in what is, you know, a safe space uh, where you can actually explore these things, embrace these things, open your heart to the Father, and then from there gain the confidence that then you can take them out into the world. But um, mm, it's a little tricky, good. but I don't think the spiritual gifts are hindered because of the unbelief of others. Mm. That's good. Uh, oh, by the way, hey guys, any of you are welcome to like jump in if you have additional thoughts to add um, to anything. Um, and everyone who's watching, please go to the chat and ask your questions. If there's anything regarding any of the, uh, what anything anyone said um, during their sermons, go into the chat, write your question down, and uh, we're gonna be pulling them up and, and answering them here tonight. So don't miss that opportunity. Uh, Chris, I wanted you to. I wanted to ask you, brother, your thoughts on as well, like just on what uh, what John said. Um, what? How? Because I know in your in your fellowship, there's been some things that happened recently regarding spiritual gifts, and yeah, brother, what what is your perspective on that? Yeah, you know, uh, thanks for asking, because I was kind of like over here biting at the bit after John left it hanging there like a like a big old volleyball, <laughs> um, but. Uh, I, I first have to preface this, like I did not grow up in any type of charismatic environment. Um, I did not grow up in assemblies of God or uh, tent revivals or anything like that. And so um, most of my experience of, of spiritual gifts was almost perverted. It was the things you saw on television with like the throwing of jackets and some of that kind of stuff. And so um, I, I would say if I wasn't pessimistic about the spirit of God's outpouring. I was very close to that. And um, over the last six months or so, the Lord's really worked on my heart. There's been some books I've read. There's been some prayer times where uh, I felt like the Lord is leading me to, to lay down some of that, um, I guess, you know, outpouring type of trauma from the negativity I had seen. And, uh, just recently, our, our church had gone through a 28 days through the book of Acts. And a couple of days before we started that, um, before first fruits, before the, the spring feast, there was a, a young family in our community. Uh, the wife was pregnant and uh, she just something was wrong. She just she knew herself. She had had multiple kids before and she she knew something's not right. Um, she went, she got an ultrasound, which is not something that she traditionally does in her pregnancies that early on. She was about 13 weeks pregnant. Uh, and the ultrasound, the ultrasound came back with uh, a rare disorder. Uh, there was a bump that was in the placenta, uh, and the placenta was bleeding and she was praying and she just, she said, Hey, look, I need, I need to call the pastors of our local church. Um, she called my wife and I, we went over there and she, she said, Hey, I don't know where the church stands on the, the laying on of hands for, for miracles of healing. Um, but I would, I would like to request that, that we, we do that as a fellowship. And so, um, we said, absolutely. We'll do that. What, what does that look like for you? What are you comfortable with? And she said, well, I, I just would prefer to not have the live stream on just the, just the local body. And so before we went live with our Sabbath service that week, we, uh, we brought her to the front. We let everybody know what was going on and we invited people to come forward and to, to pray and to lay hands on her. And so we did, we laid hands on her. Uh, we prayed for a miracle for the safety of the pregnancy, for the safety of the baby. And, uh, 
then we just waited to see what the Lord was going to do. We went through 28 days of fasting and prayer. And uh, it was this past week uh, she went back for the follow-up ultrasound. And she believed she had had a word from the Lord that it was the bump was gone, the bleeding had stopped. Because the bleeding could stop, but the bump could still be there. And, you know, there's just a lot of, of medical things that even I don't fully understand. But I knew that the percentage of medical data was not very favorable that um, – this pregnancy would go through without any complications. And uh, last week she went for an ultrasound. They had three specialists come in and not only had the placenta stop bleeding, but the bump was, was no more. There was, there was no bump whatsoever in there. The baby is fine. She's healthy. Um, And she gave that testimony during the service and during the response time of that testimony, after the message had been shared, uh, there was another lady, in our congregation who had been really struggling with blood clots and uh, she was having um, like fiery pain in her legs. And uh, her husband came up and asked if we would lay hands on her and pray. And so, so we did. And uh, you know, I'm not, this isn't my specialty. I don't, I'm like not trained. And so I'm back there like, okay, Lord, how, how does this go? What do you want me to do? And, uh, and I felt like he had said, you know, ask her for permission to to put your hand on the very spot where this blood clot is, where they're coming from. So I asked for permission to do so. And uh, and she said yes. And her husband said yes. And so our prayer team leads and we put hands on and we prayed. And on Sunday morning, she woke up. She had lost five pounds. There was no pain. There was no uh, radiating heat from the legs. She, none of it has returned. And so I have to say myself, um, as a guy who's been walking the full Bible, Messianic, Hebrew roots, Hebraic roots, whatever, since 2007, um, I'm seeing a balance. You know, the balance that people say, hey, we have to find the balance of spirit and truth. I'm starting to see the balance in my own congregation, and I've never witnessed anything like that firsthand myself. And so I absolutely do believe that God is still moving, and he can even move with people who who use the Torah as the constitution for their life. And so I just want to encourage people um, that are out there, like, if you ask, he's he's willing, he's able, he's he's there. Uh, if you if you don't believe in it, or you're you're pessimistic, like maybe I was at a period of time, uh, well, I'm not no more. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, brother. You know, and I think that's common. You know, I definitely can connect with that in my life. When you know, I grew hungry for the Word of God. You know, uh, as a young man, and and I got I devoured the Word, studied the Word, um, and you know, I, I got really smart. <laughs> in my own mind um but you know i then i looked at the bible and i'm like well there's all this stuff that yeshua did that his disciples did and that was in the early church and i just don't see it in my life and that really broke my heart like god like is there something wrong is it just if you just you know close the tap on these things or but i actually think no he's he's opening it up more and more and he but he's asking he's looking for a people who would who would be willing to believe for that to be willing to, and it's not about, you know, uh, Chris, I, I love what you say that it's, you know, you weren't like, you didn't feel qu- uh, fully uh, qualified. You didn't fully know what you were doing, perhaps even like, but it doesn't matter. But it's about, do you believe that he can do it and that he knows what he's doing? Because I think if we have that, just that simple childlike faith, then that's when he comes and moves uh, in the ways that he loves to move. So thank you for sharing that, Chris, brother. That's, that's awesome testimonies. And I praise God for what he's doing in your fellowship over there. In Oklahoma. 
Right. Uh, I wanted to uh, also uh, direct this question to uh, Dr. David Jones that came up um, from Cohen Family Creed on YouTube. And the question is, what are your thoughts on creating your own family traditions as to how to celebrate the feast? Obviously, we don't want our traditions to supersede the feast. How do you find a good boundary line? That's a great question. Uh, I, I like traditions. There's nothing wrong with having traditions as long as they don't supersede Scripture, as said. We as families have traditions anyway. We all have certain ways we like to do things. And if we look through the Scripture, we find God has traditions. These are things uh, called the, the hook in the scripture. You know, these are things that he's asked us to do. He doesn't always tell us why. He's just, this is why I want you to do things. And that's a tradition. And so there are things that he wants us to follow through with. And, and we don't always understand. It's just the way we do it. But as we do things, maybe they start to make sense to us. So the things that we pass down in our families, how do we make it meaningful for my family, for my children, and, and for those that are celebrating with me and around me. And I think that's an important thing too, because we can follow through with the scripture as exactly as it says, but if we don't make it personal, I think we're missing the point. It's, it's not just about going through the motions of something or we've, or we've got to just get it perfect. I think part of the beauty in it is that we don't get it perfect. Uh, that way it gives us room to grow and it gives us room to where the Father has that ability to make corrections in our life and understand that, you know, we can try, but we're not going to get it 100% just right. So we've got to trust where we fail. He picks up the slack. He, he picks that up for us. And so uh, traditions for our own family, we're supposed to make uh, the, the, the two loaves for the challah that was, that was given on Shavuot. Make challah with your kids. They love to cook, make a mess in the kitchen and do stuff. But that's awesome. And, uh, and, and, and bring it and, and offer it to someone, give it out and, and to share with what the father's given. And why are you sharing this? That now that gives you an opportunity to proclaim what God has done in your life and how he, he wants us to share in these seasons of joy with one another. And so I think it's good to have things that we can pass on. And as long as we understand nothing wrong with the traditions, as long as we take it back to the word. Uh, I think we can live a way where the things that we do in our families and the traditions that we have, they can just make it more real to us. Sometimes we need to, we, we, we hear things and we don't get it, but someone else could say the exact same thing and we get it. <laughs> and, and I think that's one way that can happen. Reading it, you might not understand it. If we have a, a congregation where we're assembling and doing different things, still might not click. But it's the making it practical in our homes. I think that's where things are going to click in our families, especially that's fulfilling the Shema as well. You know, and the things that we're doing today, the things that you're hearing, my words, these are to be on your hearts. You're to talk about them when, when you're rising up, when you're laying down, when you're walking on the road, when you're taking your kids to school, when you're eating breakfast and all the things that you're doing. It's about developing the word in your life. And I think a natural outgrowth of doing that is going to be some family traditions. So I think it's a beautiful thing to, to work in there. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I saw this comment. Uh, 
Karen C says from YouTube, I like to give gifts on Shavuot because Yah gave us the gift of the word and the gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, that's that's a cool example. You know, that's a a family tradition and that makes a great connection. And yeah, as long as it's like Dr. Jones said, if as long as this is not superseding, you know, God's word, you know, go ahead and make it memorable for your family, make it personal for your kids make it something that they can be excited about. Uh, I think that's always a good thing to do. Um, I wanted to ask this, and this is kind of a, an open, whoever wants to jump in on this one, I'd love to hear some of your perspectives. Um, Ryan and Victoria Lucas asked this earlier on Facebook. What do you say to those people who say Yeshua gave all the glory to the Father and that is not about Yeshua? Who wants to jump in on that one? <laughs> this is my favorite topic. Okay, go. <laughs> we have, I mean, it's bad theology. Uh, we have to understand that, yes, Yeshua in his human form here on earth came as the son of God. He was the son of man. He's described as the son throughout his human existence here on earth. But Isaiah 9, 6 explicitly says that we're to regard this son as the everlasting father. And the term father in, in scripture, it, it doesn't necessarily mean like a biological entity that begets something. It's this idea of the God that is in heaven, the heavenly form, the fullness of God. And it's the one who gives the inheritance. It's the one who, who sends and, and demonstrates and has power over everything. And so we have to understand, I mean, Yeshua is God fully. There is only one being. Uh, he calls himself Yeshua, he calls himself Yahweh, the, the, he has a spirit, you know. There's all these different names throughout the Bible and all these different manifestations of who our God is. Trying to differentiate one from another doesn't work. And theologically, a lot of people have run into ditches on that over the years. But we have to understand that, you know, whether it's Yeshua speaking, whether it's the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts, whether it's Yahweh's, you know, the word of God speaking and identifying himself as Yahweh on Mount Sinai or whatever, we are talking about one being, one person, one entity, if you will. And a lot of times in uh, you know our Trinitarian backgrounds and the theology that's come throughout history is we do understand that there are these multiple personas or persons of the Spirit, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the angel of the Lord. There's all sorts of different you know, kind of manifestations of who our God is, but we're still talking about the same God. And I think if we're ever in a place where we're not finding consistency between anything that God says, where we're looking at the God of the Old Testament and somehow contrasting him to the God of the New Testament, or we're looking at the Holy Spirit and wondering if what the Holy Spirit is telling us is congruent with everything else that God has done, we shouldn't find differences. Um, because they don't exist. Uh, there's certainly different forms, different personas that the that God takes, but it is not uh, in any way different entities. Awesome. That's a good word, brother. Is there anyone who wants to add to that? Uh, yeah, I'd love to add to that. Um, I think a key passage that speaks to this question is uh, in Philippians chapter 2. 
um, where Paul talks about he's trying to encourage uh, the congregation in Philippi to count others as more significant than themselves. He says to serve other people and to look at that person who is your equal. You're both, you're both people. You're both humans. You're both equal. He's your ontological equal as a human. And yet you are to treat that person who is equal to you as more important than you. That's what that's Paul's message in uh, Philippians chapter two. And then he goes on to give the perfect example of someone who did just that. He goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Messiah Yeshua, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped um, and, and basically a thing to be held onto. He was equal to God. He existed in the form of God, the morphe of God, uh, visible image of God, uh, which also implies status, uh, especially in this context, um, uh, the cultural context that Paul's addressing. And uh, he says he had equality with God, literally in the Greek, it's the being equal with God. And that, um, that article, the right there, connects back to the, the previous statement of form of God. So he existed in the form of God, the being equal with God. He did not consider that something to be held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So he put that rightful status, that rightful divine status that he had, that right uh, of having equality with God, he put that aside to be born in the likeness of man. And then it goes on, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in this passage, you kind of have a V shape, right? You have a V. You have Yeshua. He existed in the form of God and had equality with God. He did not consider it something to be held onto. And, uh, and actually, um, there's evidence in Greek literature and other Greek literature um, that... Uh, that um, that phrase, that exact phrase um, in Greek uh, means something to exploit. We, we see it and I, I can't remember the exact writing, but that exact phrase is used talking about a man who um, a, a woman was attracted to him and he did not consider her attraction a matter to exploit. You know, he he had her attraction, but he did not consider it a matter to to take advantage of, and so he he did not consider equality. So Yeshua, he did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited, something to use for his own advantage. Um, and, and so instead, he he took on humanity and he died, and so you have that V shape, and then he was highly exalted back to that that um, that point of. Um, of uh, where he originally was. And so why did Yeshua give all the glory to the Father in, in, uh, in his life? To show us 
what, what Paul is talking about here. It, he says that you are to treat your equals, your ontological equals, these fellow humans that you, uh, that you uh, are in community with, you are to treat them, even though they're equal to you, which is a big deal in Philippi. Status was a very big deal in this, uh, in this culture. You are to look at that person who you're equal with, and you are to treat them as more important than you. So Yeshua, even though he is equal with the Father, he treated his Father as more important. He came to earth and he died to, to serve the Father's purposes and to accomplish uh, redemption for mankind. And he, he did that as an example for us. Amen. I mean, that example, that's, brother, that's huge. That's a well a good explanation. And that example that we ought to be, to, to follow, to be like him, to consider others better than ourselves, to uh, be a servant, to wash the feet of others. You know, that's what he came to, to teach us. He came to walk that out. And that means that he lowers himself voluntarily in that sense, right? As, as the world may see it. But actually, that is the, like he said, that is actually the highest in the kingdom to lower mm-hmm. yourself, to be a servant, to be yeah. meek and humble. And so the one who is uh, greatest here will be least there in the coming kingdom, and the one who is least here will be greatest there. And so let's make ourselves least, let's consider everyone better than ourselves, and, um, and uh, build others up instead of tearing them down. Thanks, David. That's a really good word, brother. Anyone else who wants to add to that? PD, along those same lines, mm. uh, Yeshua said, I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But then don't forget his prayer for his uh, disciples. In John 17, he said, Father, I pray that that they are one like you and I are one. So I think that ties in pretty well with, with what David just said and our relationship with the Father and our relationship with each other. They manifest in a lot of the same ways. And, and uh, how we treat our heart for the Father comes out and how we view and deal with each other as well. That's good. Yeah. All right. I, you know, for me personally, uh, you know, I, I like Matthew 28 as a follow-up from, from what these guys have said when, when Yeshua says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and then go, therefore, make disciples. We like to talk a lot of times about go and make disciples, but like you're going and making disciples under the authority that has been given to Yeshua, both here in the physical and in the heavenlies. Well, I don't, I don't have the same authority that Yeshua has in the heavenly realm. And so for me, sometimes it's just as simple as to say, like, I don't get to tell God who God is as a creation of the creator. Why am I constantly trying to to dissect the creator's power? Um, why can't I just take him at his word? And so that's why I think, you know, what John said and what, what David said, what you said, PD, and what uh, other David, two Davids, uh, Dos Davids, uh, said from the text, I think is important. Like, you know, we need to we need to not try to minimize any authority or honor that has been given um, that was never ours to, to, to delegate. It was never our spiritual authority to delegate who Yeshua was or who Yahweh is. Um, we're just supposed to be humble and we're so go- supposed to obey and to walk in the power that he has bestowed to us uh, in this realm. And so, um, you know, that, that's an age old question. That's, that's one that's been around for, for many, many years, but in my life, uh, you know, I, I just, 
I try to stay away from minimizing Yeshua, trying to separate Yahweh and Yeshua in ways that the text don't explicitly say. Amen, brother. That's really good. And especially what you just said about that that thing where we want to take authority on who is Yeshua and who is the Father. Yeah, I think that can, that can get really slippery and, and dangerous. So that's a good word. Um, just on that on this train of thought, there's another question that Stephanie Norton asked, and uh, she said this. She asked, um, "Do any of the do any of think the word supports the idea that the unity and prayer of the 120 was essential in bringing about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? In other words, did y'all require their part in united prayer, or was it just going to happen on Shavuot regardless of what they did?" Now that's that's an interesting question, you know. I uh, what I'll just what I'll say at least on this is, I think when you consider God's plans and how He He appoints servants and how He uh, brings matters together, you know, absolutely it was Shavuot was going to happen the way it did in Acts chapter two because that's what the Father uh, planned and that was going to happen according to His plan. But I do think that that plan included having uh, a people who was of one mind, right? I and and so I think that our us being um, in the Father's will, right? Us going after His will, that is part of the Father's plan. He we are worked into His plan, and so uh, Stephanie, I would say that you know if we want to be in His will, if we want to be included in in as those people were in Acts chapter 2. If we want to be included in the crowds who receive that blessing of the Holy Spirit, then we need to do what they did. We need to do what Father said we should do. That is, we need to be of one mind. We need to, we're all going to have our our, our petty differences. Um, uh, we're going to have our disagreements even. But when it comes to uh, what is most important being united as to who the Savior is and what He's done for us. You know, we should stand united with one another and not split over uh, secondary issues. And and I think when that becomes central in our fellowships, then we will see the Father move of His Holy Spirit in similar ways and we read in the Scriptures. So, yes, I, I personally think unity is... Let me say it like this. I think that we've even seen a lack of the move of the Holy Spirit in some circles because of the lack of unity, because there's so much infighting over theologies and whatever kinds of disagreements, even about what we just talked about, you know, who is the Father, who is Yeshua. You know, when we when we are in such disunity over topics uh, like that, not to say they're not important, but when we have infighting over them, uh, there is definitely a a a a hindrance, a roadblock that's put up uh, before uh, the Holy Spirit moving in our lives and fellowships the way He wants, I, th- I believe. Anyone wants to add to that? Yeah, I want to throw something in there, PD. Um, scripture says, example, at, at the right time, God sent His Son. There are times that God has set for things to happen. I mean, we see example of uh, Joseph. Did Pharaoh just happen to have the dreams? And, and oh, look, here's this guy, Joseph. You know, I mean... No, he was positioned to, to be in place, and then God gave Pharaoh the dreams because he had that he had him in place to be there. Uh, God's going to do what he's going to do, but if we are not following him in the midst of that, then we're going to miss our opportunity in it. Uh, there's so many things that, that God wants to happen in our midst, but we've got to be willing to do our part. 
we have to be willing to, if we're not willing to be in that place of unity, then we're not going to have that benefit that that provides for us. Our heart's not going to be on God. It's not going to be on his spirit. It's not going to be on his people. So we can't be a people to bring division and expect God to move in the midst of that. Mm, that's good, brother. Thanks for adding that. I think the, uh, the other piece here is what you see in the second chapter, really Acts 1 and 2, but is an absence of what Scripture describes as the works of the flesh. And unfortunately, especially you know, in the modern Western world, uh, a lot of times our believing communities are focused so intently on divisions and strife and selfish ambition and all of these sorts of things that even when we come together at conferences or events or worship services or whatever, a lot of times people are, they may be physically participating, but in the back of their mind, they're sitting here dividing and trying to think of all the differences that we have between each other and thinking about how this whole thing would be better if it was according to my understanding, uh, you know, and it's what we see in acts one and then two is that they laid aside their selfish fleshly ambitions and truly that creates opportunity for the spirit to move in power. Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of like this polarity between the flesh and the spirit that we see throughout scripture. And if we're operating in the flesh, um, it's going to be difficult to to maintain the spirit at the same time. Hey, man, it's good, brother. Can I I throw something on the back of what John just said? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) You know, when we read the the account in the first part of Acts and and Peter spoke and and 3,000 repented and gave, you know, their heart back to God here, I think one of the things that we miss they were at the Temple Mount, and these 3,000 people were still at the Temple Mount because they were told in the Torah to be at the Temple Mount. It's what I'm, what I'm getting at is they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were where they were supposed to be, but what we learn is that their hearts weren't right. I don't know if they were doing it out of a sense of obligation or just, oh, I'd better or just a, a religious thing or whatever it may be. They were at the right place doing the right thing, but their heart was completely out of it. And so I think we can learn from that. It's that if we come into this place of unity, if we repent for our disunity, then what do you think the Father is going to do in our midst today? Mm, that's good. And, you know, I would add to that, you know, when you think about what happened in the room there in Acts 2, you know, there was obviously some disagreements as to whether this is from God even, you know, when the people started speaking in tongues, and tongues of fire landed on their heads, these people saying, you know, in the back, you know, oh, these men must be drunk and Peter has to get up and explain, you know, what do you mean? It can't be. Uh, we have to be cautious, you know, we have to make sure that we're in his presence and we have then therefore his eyes to see when his spirit is moving and have that discernment because it seems as if though when Shavuot happens, there's always controversy when God does something, you know, whether it's Mount Sinai, there was a lot of controversy there. There was a lot of rebellion there or even at Mount Zion, you know, Acts 2, there's a lot of controversy, rebellion there. And it's all about really what God is doing and giving his people and we have, I want to just encourage everyone who's listening, you know, we should be discerning. We should be careful. Absolutely. Right. 
But let's make sure that when we want to judge that we're really seeking his heart, we're really seeking his will, and we're willing to even be, have, we're willing to let God move in a way that we don't expect or in a way that we want to predetermine, you know, because sometimes in the, if I may say, the religious world, uh, we we create boxes and, and we want our services to go a certain way and, and there's nothing wrong with structure, but but I, I'm pretty sure that what happened in Acts 2 wasn't on the program. <laughs> um, and that included the 3,000 who got baptized. So praise him for that. Uh, so, yeah. Anyone who wants to add to that? Okay. If not, I'll move on to the next I, one here. I, uh, you go for it, Chris. I, 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 think if, I think if we start to look at at the entire scripture as a revelation of, of God, what he wants, how he wants his people to walk rather than just, uh, you know, the, the American mentality of give me a checkbox, um, give me a, a, a to-do list, give me a right or wrong. Let me figure out how I can, I can say it's done or it's, it's, um, it's completed, and we start to look at, at it as a revelation to us that God can reveal uh, the blessings of the entirety of the Scripture, the entirety of the the power of the Spirit uh, in this physical world, rather than just a, a a regulation of something we just we have to do every day, or we 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 just want to check it off so that we can feel good about what we what we're doing in our life. Um, it would bring unity because what we're constantly doing is putting our focus back on God rather than putting the focus on our understanding or our insufficiencies as human beings. Um, you know, we would really just be putting our focus back on being obedient to God and what does he want for each and every one of us. And, um, you know, I've, I've even witnessed that throughout the years going into Sabbath gatherings when when you go into a church where where Yeshua is the focus of the praise, Yeshua is the focus of the teaching, Yeshua is the focus of everything they do, um, there seems to be, and this is just my perception, there seems to be more unity because the focus is on Yeshua. The focus isn't mm -hmm. on uh, the pastor or, or the speaker or um, the worship leader or uh, every single one of those things is, is a creation that is, is flawed. And it will fail people, and that will cause division. It will cause harm. Uh, if the focus is on Yeshua, then um, if somebody has the gift of the apostolic office, then, okay, fantastic. Yeshua has given them that. That's awesome. You know, that's not my gift. Let's walk together. And this is kind of what Paul was talking about with the different members of the body. For a long time in the uh, the 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 side of the movement of Christianity that we're in, there's just been a lot of focus on on specific offices and specific uh, ways of doing things. And when we we kind of press back to Yeshua as being the center, and like I can clearly say I'm not a teacher. Like that's not the office I, I that the Lord has me fulfilling. And so uh, I no longer 
want to seek division with other teachers, or I no longer want to get into arguments over different doctrines and things like that. I, I know where, where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do because I'm just 100% focused on Yeshua and what he has for me and those that are under my leadership, my flock that he's entrusted me with. So if we keep Yeshua at the center of the focus of what we do, I think we see more of the Lord being able to work like he did work in the, the book of Acts, because it's all about realizing that we are the resources of God and we are God's property. And so everything we do should be to be giving back to him for his glory, not for any man, uh, lest they should boast. And so um, from my experiences, if, if we, we want to see God move in our own personal life, if we want to see God move in our own communities, we have to stop looking at other people as the leader or other people as the this or that or whatever, because then we judge it the same way that uh, all of our flesh does, which is imperfection. And we need to go in and say, hey, look, um, this is my fellow, fellow brother and sister in Christ. They're here. We're just here to worship God to the best of our possible ability. And if those, if that's our focus, if that's where our eyes are at, um, you spend a lot less time worrying about being in division uh, with other people. Oh, good, brother. Thanks for adding that. Any last thoughts on this? Okay, I would like to uh, just read this comment here before we move on to this uh, the concluding thoughts. Um, I am seen from YouTube asks, how do you celebrate the feast when you're grieving the recent loss of loved ones? Is it okay to still be sad and grieve even though he calls us to be joyful during the feast? Hmm. I think uh, since we're talking a lot about you know, I think like what Chris mentioned, the the passion, you know, a few of us have mentioned this now, really, I think there's a, a pattern of God wants us to have a renewed passion, not just to have a checklist, not just to have, uh, you know, business as usual, but to really believe in him and expect of him to move in our lives in greater measures as we put our faith in him in greater ways. Now, when someone doesn't feel, because this is reality, we're all people, and sometimes things happen in our life. And sometimes we really don't feel like worshiping God today. Sometimes we don't feel like mm. um, uh, we can be present even if he is. Mm. And, you know, just my initial thought is I remember one night, you know, I was at a, this uh, just personal testimony. I was years ago uh, at this worship service. And I remember I was trying to worship God. It was like a lot of people around me. And they're all, you know, in it, they, they seem very joyful. And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking to myself, God, I, I can't, I don't feel that way right now. Like, I feel there are some things going on in my life, my mind is racing through my mind. And I, I'm like, God, I, I, how do I, I want to worship you. And I feel guilty, right? I'm sure some of you felt that, like, you know, just feel like guilty because I, I don't even know if this, if, you know. But then I found that in that night, you know, long story, just to make it short, the father just came and, and gave me a prophetic, someone came up to me and said, hey, I saw you in a dream, like in the beginning of this week. And this is this random person I've never met. I've never been at this fellowship or anything. And they're like, God showed me this and this and this about you. And, and it's just like, wow, God sees me. He knows me. He knows everything I'm going through. And even no matter what I feel, even though I don't 
feel like it's easy to worship him right now. Like he has so much compassion and grace for where we are at because he has Mm. suffered himself. He has bled through his skin. He is not, it's not the, the, the worries and the struggles in this world are not foreign to him. And so I would just encourage you, uh, I am seen from, from YouTube, you know, and anyone who feels like that, I would encourage you to, to remember that he sees our struggles and just, just be there, you know, go and, and, and be present, like do what, whatever he puts on your heart to do during this feast to celebrate in every, whichever way you're, you can, but also recognize that his presence is there with you and he is there to comfort you in this time. And he is absolutely in a place of understanding uh, when, when we don't feel like we're always as in it as we could be. Anyone who's got mm. uh, additional thoughts on that? I, I would just say that, that joy is deeper than a mere feeling, you know, joy, joy is something that you can, uh, that you can experience even in the depths of despair. And, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, John chapter 11, when Yeshua, he, uh, his friend Lazarus had just died. And, uh, John 11 talks about how he saw the people that were weeping uh, and it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled because he saw them weeping and he he saw their sadness he saw their grief and that affected him yeshua is affected by our grief yeshua sees our grief he sees our sorrow and and he's moved by it and uh, he weeps when we weep because um, the, the passage goes on that Yeshua, he, he wept himself. Uh, he was affected by the pain of loss. And there is nothing at all wrong with, with feeling the weight of that loss. Um, among believers, there is often this unspoken pressure to act like everything is okay when it isn't, uh, but that is simply unbiblical. Um, it's okay that it hurts. It's okay to feel the weight of that pain. Um, I pulled up a, this quote from Charles Spurgeon actually really quick because I thought it, I just really love this quote from him. I think it's um, so relevant. But he says, uh, no sin is necessarily connected with sorrow of heart. For Jesus Christ, our Lord, once said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. There was no sin in him and consequently none in his deep depression. And so Yeshua himself was exceedingly sorrowful. He himself was, uh, was deeply affected by, by the pain of loss. And uh, he did not sin in, in those feelings. And, and so neither, neither do we. And um, I, uh, I'm also reminded of um, the blessing that Yeshua pronounces upon those who mourn. He said in, in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And that doesn't mean you will be happy. You know, that, that doesn't mean that you will feel happy uh, or, you, you know, but it, but you will be comforted. God has a special place in his heart for hurting people. The Psalms declare that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. 
that he, he is near you in, in that moment. And, and so if there is anything um, that can give you comfort in, in this uh, immense time of, of grief and sorrow, it's that the Lord is with you. It's that the Lord is close to you in that moment. And, you, you know, worship is, is not always praise worship sometimes is lament. And so, so don't ever think that, oh, because I'm just so sorrowful, I'm, I'm just so uh, broken and, and grieving right now. I, I can't worship God right now. No, you can. You can worship God in your grief. You can worship, you can submit that grief to him as an offering at his, at his altar. That, that's what David says, you know, the, the offerings that you delight in are a crushed spirit, you will you will delight in in a crushed spirit, God, and so that is a form of worship. Bringing your grief and your sorrow to Him that is a form of worship, and the comfort that you can experience in that moment uh, is is a uh, can be joyful. You can rejoice in in that comfort that you have in in that moment. Uh, Corey Ten Boom once said, Corey Ten Boom, she's a Christian Holocaust survivor. She said, um, no pit is so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And so even in the depths of our despair, his love meets us there and we can rejoice in that. Amen, brother. Amen. Thank you for sharing and that. I, I would just add, I loved what he said. Um, I know going into feast um, when you just experience loss is really difficult. Um and I know a lot of times we go into the feast thinking, what can I bring? What can I give? What can I do? But maybe it's a time for the Holy Spirit to just minister to you mm. and where you're at in your grieving. And because we know that Yeshua is right there with us in our loss and in our pain. But it, this scripture just came to mind. It's um, Isaiah 61, and it's just verse 1 through, uh, 1 through 3. But the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for his display of his splendor. Yeah, I mean, I think having, I mean, probably everyone here has been through tremendous loss at times, but one thing that I think is so important, I mean, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. God himself mm -hmm. is the comforter. And even this verses that Melissa just shared, this is what the Spirit of God exists for. That's what it brings. It's what the anointing is. And obviously, we know it was embodied in Yeshua, but it's still the same Spirit, same God is still alive and active. And I think as it pertains to like the feasts and worship and stuff, one of the things that we are instructed to do is to give the Lord the most precious parts of ourselves. So we give Him whatever it is that means the most to us. And if you're in a season of loss, or perhaps if you've gone through one and those memories are still so precious, 
I would encourage you not to dismiss that. Like, don't leave that off the altar of your worship. Bring the fullness yeah. of your broken heart. Bring the fullness of your grief, your loss, everything, and just give it to him. He may, he may not have, you know, there's no ritual to perform. There's no, you know, way that it's going to just, like, go away. And we don't even necessarily want it to go away. We just want to take it and just offer it to him. That's what true worship is. And what he does with it beyond that point is up to his sovereignty. But I would just encourage you to don't skip out on the feast or the Sabbath or anything like that because you're in a hard circumstance. Instead, take the, the fullness of that circumstance, especially those pieces that hurt and mean the most, and just give it to him. And you'll be amazed at what he does with it. I mean, it's such a sacrifice of praise. Hmm. I like how you Amen. put that. You said to give him the, that precious part, even if it's your pain. And it, that really makes me think of David throughout the Psalms. I mean, we read the times when he was mourning, when he was in pain, when he was depressed, when he was hurt. And he gave that to God because that's all he had to give. I love that. And uh, he will uh, meet us there. It, we don't have to, you know, be all smiling in order for him to meet us. He wants us where we're at. I think it's beautiful. I mean, he says over and over again yeah. in his word that he's near the brokenhearted, that he runs to those who cry out to him. That, And I think a lot of times in our world, like we are so accustomed to comfort <laughs> that when we actually experience moments of genuine suffering, it's so foreign to us. And we're, we look around and we're like, you know, we just utterly despair. But, and I think we, we develop this kind of twisted sense of like, you know, we hear these phrases and they almost become like cliches about how like, he will be with you in the fire. He will be with you in the flood. He, he will come to you in your brokenness and your suffering. And because we don't fully understand him or value him for who he is, we think that he's a consolation prize because life has gone off mm -hmm. the rails not realizing that he is the prize of life. And if it takes getting into a furnace to have his presence in your life, you have just won everything that this life has to offer. And, and so like, it's not that, oh, you'll find him in your suffering. It's that you will find him in your suffering if you seek him with all mm -hmm. of your heart. And it is better to have him and truly have him and experience him in suffering than it is to live a moment of prosperity apart from him because he yeah. is the only thing that actually matters amen 100 percent. i i i just am really thankful that they were vulnerable enough to to share that you know on on a broadcast with with people from all over the world um Sometimes our churches, sometimes our gatherings, our, our, our house churches, our Saturday churches, whatever, sometimes we don't do a good job of creating a space for people who are in despair, who are in grief, um, to, to be able to be open and transparent about the things that they're wrestling with and, and just how emotionally distraught that might make them in that season. And so a lot of times we look at Shavuot, we look at Pentecost, we look at the feasts and, you know, we talk about them when we come together, but there, there is always brokenhearted people 
right around us, um, sometimes in our own family and in our own homes. And so uh, I'm really encouraged that, that they felt safe enough to, uh, to share that they were, they were struggling with grief. And uh, I personally will be praying for them. I know everybody on this, this conference will be praying for them. And uh, Amy as well, Amy Murray in the comments said that she, she has a lot of days where she's very brokenhearted and it's, Thank you for feeling vulnerable enough to share uh, with us that so that we can we can be an encouragement and we can be praying for you. Amen. That's good. Yeah, I think it would be good for us to pray for some of these uh, in the comments. And uh, yeah, I would I want to ask, um, is there any concluding thoughts that anyone has here before we move into prayer? Okay, um, so I'm gonna. I want to just say a big thank you to everyone here, all of the speakers, guys. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight, giving your sermons, and joining everyone for the live Q and A. We had about 200 people at some point looking, asking questions, and and the and the comments were so positive. People have been so blessed, and all glory to the Father. Um, and yeah, so guys, if this. Uh, broadcast has been a blessing to you. We would like to really sow into each of these ministries that you see right here. I didn't tell them this, but now I am. <laughs> uh, we we want to give something to them. So if this has been a blessing to you, you can go to riseonfire.com and uh, make an offering if the Father, Father, if the Holy Spirit pulls your heart to do that. Uh, and we'll be making sure that, that it goes to the, these speakers. Um, and for that matter, if you if you're new here, if you've never seen these broadcasts before, make sure you subscribe to the channel and you can text Yeshua to 94000 to get a notification when we go live again. Uh, so yeah, guys, I uh, want to say thank you again for joining me. I want to end off on a prayer for everyone here in the comments uh, and everyone who's at home watching us. Father, I pray, Lord, for everyone. Lord, I pray for all the broken hearts, Father. I pray for Holy Spirit that you would come and be a, the comforter, Lord, that you have said you are here to be to us, Lord. I pray that you would, that they would experience your, your presence, Father. They would experience uh, the peace that surpasses understanding, that come by no other way, Father, but when your presence, your Holy Spirit enters the room and Father, I pray, Lord, for those hearts that are confused, that are angry, maybe even bitter. Father, I pray, Lord, for restoration. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would come and bring, give clarity. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, Lord, that Shavuot, that this event, this time, this week, Father, that it would be a, a time of restoration, Father, that you would bring your people together, Father. Lord, I pray that you would convict hearts, Lord, tonight. Everyone who's listening here who has eyes of a brother, I pray that there would be a conviction of your Holy Spirit to pick up the phone and have a conversation. Uh, Father, I pray for your for the unity in the body, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as you've brought us, even as speakers here tonight, together in such unity that we can love one another. Uh, Father, I pray that this unity would just be all over your body, Father, and throughout of Christianity, Father, that that there would be no that the man-made barriers and denominations and all the things that we've built up, Father, uh, Father, I pray that there would be a restoration of unity in your body, Father, and I pray, Lord, that you would just bring your Holy Spirit down, Lord, as you did in Acts two, Father, I pray that you would 
give, a, give us all a, a fresh anointing, a, a living waters, Father, like, like water that we've never had before, Father. I pray that there would be such a, a, a stir in us, God, a, a reigniting of passion within us, Father, that we won't be able to shake that. And Lord, I pray for everyone who's listening tonight who's been feeling that passion wane, that, that, that desire to be in the intimate time with you, Father, all of these things that are so important, Father, sometimes other things in life ta- has taken priority. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to put you where you ought to be, the king of our lives, Father. There is no one but you, Yeshua. You are wonderful, glorious king. Uh, Father, we cannot wait, Father, to enter that presence uh, with you uh, ruling from Jerusalem as it is written. Uh, Father, I pray for even though that is in our in our close future, Father, I pray that that reality that you are King, that that would be in, at the forefront of our lives as to how we live and how we treat others in this world. And Father, I pray for all who are sick, broken-hearted, or who have physical hearts who have issues or physical infirmities of whatever kind. Father, uh, Lord, we we step in right now for. All of the uh, people in the chat and who are watching from home who have physical infirmities. And Father, I pray for your healing to come now and heal them. Father, I thank you for cancer to leave and pain in the bones and the muscles and and arthritis and uh, blood sicknesses and allergies and all kinds of things. Whatever there is, Lord, you know all of these. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to move and heal these bodies who are watching in the name of Yeshua. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to just distribute spiritual gifts, Father, to to raise a generation of young people, Father, that would walk in the fire of your Holy Spirit, that they would walk in the in passion for your word and for what truth is and what holiness is in a world so opposed to it. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to raise a, 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 a people that would become teachers in this world of righteousness. And not only teachers, not, but examples of righteousness. Father, I pray that you would help us to never be hypocrites, but to practice and to walk like you did, Yeshua, and as you do walk among us. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Brian, sisters, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. It's been such an honor, such a pleasure. It's been an amazing three and a half-ish hours, and I am so honored that you would choose to spend it tonight with us. May the Father bless you and keep you, and we look forward to seeing you in the next video. Many blessings and shalom to you.